The following is brought to you by the Social Suplex Podcast Network. Hello, this is Zack Sabre Jr., New Japan Cup winner 2018. And you are listening to Keeping It Strong Style with my mates. Enjoy. Yo, this is Rich Ladder from One Nation Radio. This is brought to you by the Social Suplex Podcast Network. We present to you the Ace of Podcasts, Keeping It Strong Style. Let's go. It's the Ace of Podcasts, Keeping It Strong Style. Covering New Japan, they ready to hold it down. Jeremy Donovan and the young boy Josh. Come and hit a job out in Barrio the Frost. From Tokyo Dome over to the G1. Social Suplex is the network where we can get it done. I'm a chiller. Let them have it Cause this is just an intro Keeping the strong style Six stars from the get go Boy Yeah from Tampa Bay To the Tokyo Dome This is keeping it strong style With your host Jeremy Donovan And the young boy Joshua Smith And thank you for listening Welcome to Keeping It Strong Style The Ace of Podcast On the Social Suplex Podcast Network Jeremy Donovan here With the young boy Josh Smith on today's show, we'll review Battle in the Valley, preview Fantastica Mania, and cover all this news in the world of New Japan Pro Wrestling. You can support our show by subscribing and following the Social Suplex Podcast Network or keeping it strong style on the podcast app of your choice and leaving a rating interview. You can also get all the podcasts over at socialsuplex.com. Check out our Pro Wrestling Tees store, ProWrestlingTees.com slash Social Suplex. That's where you can get your official Keeping It Strong style t-shirt. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider making a one-time or monthly donation by visiting SocialSuplex.com slash donate and click on the donate button under the Keeping It Strong style logo. This episode is brought to you by the NJPWEXT, the only browser extension for NJPWWorld.com, frequently updated, and with features like dark mode, improved translations and layouts, custom and share playlists, synchronized viewing parties, and much, much more. It takes NJPW World to the next level. You can visit NJPW. EXT.US today for details. Young boy, we're here keeping it strong style. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, we're definitely here. Um, full disclosure to all the listeners, thank you for tuning in. Um, I don't know if you can tell, but I am a little bit under the weather. I don't know if you can hear that in my voice. Uh, so if you happen to hear a sniffle or a cough or whatever, mind your business, okay? <laughs> you're lucky you're getting a show at this point, all right? <laughs> yeah, I was worried I would have to pull a solo show for a second there. <laughs> I mean, as as someone who's done multiple solo shows at this point, I would say the most in this show's history, correct? Yeah, I think I've, I think I've only done one solo show. Right, so as the grandmaster of solo shows on this show... You know, you're just going to have to get on my level, Jeremy. That's what's going to have to happen there. <laughs> well, you could have taken a sick day. I would have I would have uh, charged on if you weren't able to uh, record tonight. Well, full disclosure, we generally uh, have been recording on Monday nights, and then we, what, release the show Wednesday morning? Yeah. Yeah. 
Um, so we were going to record last night and then, um, there was a family sickness over here. Right. So I was like, you know what, let's hold off. But I wasn't sick. It was other family members that were sick and I was like, all right, I'll hold off. And then, uh, you know, record tomorrow, uh, take care of some things that need to be taken care of. Lo and behold, I get sick. And like, it was in the middle of the night that I'm like sitting there and I'm like falling asleep. And then I feel it. I could just suddenly feel the ooze come over me and I'm like, Oh my God, I'm going to be sick tomorrow. And then, yep. Sure enough, I am sick and I've been sick all day. Uh, (laughs) um, but you know, sometimes it's like you have to show your fighting spirit when you're recording a podcast about strong style, you know? (laughs) Yeah. I got to live up to the, uh, the name of the branding here. Yeah. Uh, Before we jump into things first, I just want to uh, give a shout out and plug to a friend of the show, our man, Rich Latta. Over on One Nation Radio, you've probably friend, not my friend. <laughs> <laughs> Just playing. <laughs> uh, you probably saw uh, last week on all over social media, uh, Rich Latta. He was a part of the Swerve City podcast with uh, Swerve Strickland and Montezzi interviewing the best bout machine, the current. IWGP United States heavyweight champion, the cleaner Kenny Omega. Yeah, um, very proud of Rich. Proud of uh, you know his connection to Swerve. What that's what doors that's kind of opened in general, and everything that he's kind of added to that project and the various projects that they're doing together. So that's really really cool. I did tune in to the live world premiere broadcast on youtube but it was like the tail end they were just talking about video games at that point and i was like all right i'm gonna have to listen to the whole show but i've been um aside from being under the the weather there's been other stuff going on in my house so i haven't even i'm like really behind on all my podcasts and probably tomorrow after i get done watching fantastic mania during office hours Um, I'll need to uh, tune in and listen to that. So I haven't gotten a chance to listen yet. Have you uh, checked it out, Jeremy? Yes, I watched it uh, this weekend on uh, the Swerve City YouTube channel. Yeah, I thought it was a really good interview. I thought Rich did a great job uh, with the questions that he asked Kenny. So you guys can check that out on the the Swerve City YouTube. And then if you're waiting for audio only, it will be on the One Nation Radio solo feed this friday so if you're not already subscribed to that go ahead subscribe to the one nation radio uh solo feed they'll be dropping that exclusive audio on that feed for their listeners uh so yeah really really great stuff yeah and i'd recommend if you're listening to this if you obviously there's the convenient um social suplex podcast network feed which is great it carries all of our shows but it does actually benefit each individual show if you listen to their individual feed Uh, of course if you don't want to you're not required to but uh that particular podcast is it's not going to be on the network feed it's going to be on the one nation radio feed which is cool for those guys and um if you you know feel like it it's an easy thing to do give them a uh download or listen on off their individual feed that kind of helps you know pay the bills around here <laughs> yeah and then also too if you go to uh social suplex.com rich also wrote a column um kind of talking about his experience interviewing kenny and everything that went into that so you can check that out too social suplex.com should be on the, the front page of the website you can uh, check that column out 
Uh, so yeah, so once again, shout out to Rich. Big things popping over there. Uh, I, I told him to get the drop for keeping it strong styles. Like you already got the Kenny drop on your guy's show, you know, spread the love. And he's like, I'll try. And then he didn't get it. (laughs) (laughs) He said, it's not for you, baby. Yeah. He was like, bro, Kenny just got up and left. He's like, you know, so I was like, no worries, whatever. I get it. You know, although, you know, Jeremy, let me ask you with everything. I mean, obviously we're not really a, AEW podcast or anything like that, but I think it probably is somewhat relevant. What do you think of these, uh, you know, elite rumors and kind of the tumultuous backstage stuff going on potentially with AEW and how that ties into the fact that like Kenny Omega is the U.S. champion right now? Yeah, (laughs) it's very interesting. Some kind of you know dark rumors on the internet right now of potentially. You know Kenny Omega and maybe the Young Bucks leaving AEW, uh, specifically more Kenny Omega. Um, you know the the rumor has it that he's currently working without a contract in uh, AEW until I guess negotiations are finalized and TK offers a new deal. I'm not sure kind of what the potential holdup is there. I know a lot of stuff is happening potentially around CM Punk and his status, so maybe why Kenny. Hasn't re-signed yet, but there's a lot of rumors going around. There are reports at WWE. They're, they're very interested in, in a big free agent, and it wasn't Jay White. And so people are kind of connecting the dots and thinking it's uh, Kenny Omega. And, you know, um, back before AEW started, you know, we had the whole McMahon family promo of, you know, we, we're going to give you what you want. And they thought they had, <laughs> they, thought they had the Elite, um, and they were going to debut the Elite on Raw, but that all fell through and AEW started. So yeah, it, it'll be very interesting to see if, if KM. I mean, he you know he's you know up there in his career. He's done everything there is to do in New Japan. He's pretty much done everything there is to do in AEW. Uh, you know, the one big career box he hasn't checked is a WWE performing on, on a WrestleMania. Um, so I mean, that could be very intriguing to him if somehow, some way, things don't work out with negotiations well, with Tony Khan. I mean, I'm at the point now where. Every time there's a free agent and there's the the conversation, and this is over the last three years for the most part, you know, there's the conversation where they're going to go, where they're going to wind up. And we always throw out New Japan as a potential viable landing spot. And it hasn't happened. I think the only person I can remember in this entire timeline that chose New Japan over offers from the other companies, to the best of my knowledge, is like Jeff Cobb. Yeah. Yeah. when they were trying, both WWE and AEW were trying to snatch him up, and he uh, elected to go to New Japan. But almost everybody else has gone to one of those two companies, so I just don't think, for the most part, that I'm gonna like. If, if for instance, Kenny leaves, I'm not gonna be like, well, you never know. He could, he could pop up in New Japan. Like, no, it's probably not happening. We, we might want to start talking about ways to get that red strap off. <laughs> Yeah, we don't we don't need another uh, Carl Anderson situation where a title is you know hijacked and that'd be even though it'll, it'll be Kenny, so it'll be a little bit better. Um, well, the good thing is they did have him show up with the belt recently on television, um, so at least there's some quasi acknowledgement. But I I gotta tell you, Jeremy, and I mean again, it's not an AEW show, but I've been personally pretty critical of the way the the interactions and the relationship between new japan and AEW, um 
I, I don't think it's as reciprocal as I think it should be from a, from the standpoint where there's, there definitely is a synergy between the two companies. They do offer a lot of opportunity to like new Japan wrestlers to come over and do some cool things. And that's great. And in vice versa, they do send talent to new Japan, especially like the U S shows, but anytime anyone from new Japan is doing something in AEW, it is heavily promoted on the broadcast team, on the social media, on new Japan world, like just pretty much across the board. Like, I, th- there really is no lacking for New Japan promoting the AEW brand. But anytime anybody from AEW goes to New Japan and does anything, you don't know about it at all. It is completely non-kayfabe to them. And it kind of sucks. I mean, I d- granted, I get it. You, maybe you don't tell people about Christopher Daniels or, or QT Marshall showing up on Strong. But when, like an executive VP of the company has one of the greatest matches of all time in the Tokyo dome and beats a top player in new Japan and takes home the red belt. Maybe you should like play some clips of that or right. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know. Promote it on social media to some degree, maybe on the show, just be like this coming Saturday or whatever the day was, you know, in the Tokyo dome, like they didn't do anything like that. Like Kenny just showed up with the red belt the other day for the first time. And you know, who knows? Yeah, there was definitely no yeah promotion of the New Japan match of Wrestle Kingdom, how to watch it. They didn't even show highlights, and they showed highlights of the, the Noah match with Sting and Darby teaming up yeah. with uh, Great Muta for his final uh, match with Great Muta. So they, they have the obviously the ability to show what they want to show on the show. And so... Um, this really isn't isolated either. You think about like... Um, oh, man, I'm sick, so I'm... Struggling to think of names. Um, Lance Archer yeah. in the G1. Yeah, I mean, there's uh, multiple times. Moxley. Lisa Wheeler, Mox. Yeah. Different people. Yeah, several guys have done big stuff in New Japan, in America, and in Japan uh, mm-hmm. throughout the last couple of years, and AEW has not really pushed it whatsoever. All FTR, they had a big match that's as well. A, that's a big one, too. Uh, yeah. Against Bishamon, and they didn't, you know, mention that really, or even the FTR Aussie Open match. Which was, you know, many people's uh, 2022 match of the year. So I forgot about that. Yeah, they should have mentioned that. They didn't even mention it. It's, it's really weird. <laughs> yeah. Um, Aussie Open is going to be, uh, I believe, on Dynamite tomorrow night, a part of the tag team battle royal. Um, but yeah, the AW's had several opportunities to, you know, strengthen the relationship and kind of push New Japan. And, you know, remember there was a whole announcement that the future of Honor Club was supposed to be tied in. With yeah. New Japan, and there's going to be a big announcement after Wrestle Kingdom. Well, you know, it's uh, been quite some time after Wrestle Kingdom, and we still haven't gotten any announcement about how ROH and New Japan are working together. If, if not how, if it's even going to happen. Because, I mean, to our understanding at this point is that um, Bushi Road is the one that's going to be you know, heading up that production going forward. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Um, I guess we that is kind of a good segue into the, the main topic of the show. But one other thing I just wanted to touch base on before we, we move off the subject. Um, not a big fan of the way AEW's utilized uh, Kenny Omega amongst other stars. I mean, it's a whole different discussion altogether, but, you know... Um, the guy's been back for, you know, since like what, December, November? Uh, yeah. Yeah. November. 
And I know they had some issues with like the um, visa situation, but it's like, I don't know, man, I'm, I'm looking at how they're, uh, you know, utilizing some of these guys like Danielson, like Kenny Omega and a few others. And I'm like, you know, you're, you're not really treating them or pushing them like top guys. And this really isn't sour grapes, but I think it is worth noting that he has the red belt and I'm not ready to fully concede that. I'm not going to say it was wrong to put that title on him just yet, but many of the diehard pro elite elitist type fans were very concerned about once you put the strap on him, what could that potentially mean? Does that mean the thing gets iced and you know, there's no, and we kind of threw the situation out there like, no, nah, it could be a lot like John Moxley. He could be defending it over there in AEW. They're definitely going to make note, make mention of it and utilize it in some way. And so far that hasn't happened and it. There's no indication it's going to happen moving forward. Um, of course, everything could be rectified very quickly. If hypothetically, you know, Kenny shows up at say like secure Genesis in some form or fashion, and we move on to his next feud, you know, supposedly supposed to be with Jeff Cobb in some form or fashion, but I am nervous. There's an announcement on Wednesday, apparently Tony Khan's making, and I feel like it perhaps may be connected to these rumors and, and everything. And it's like, dude, he's got the red belt. Maybe, maybe, those fans that were apprehensive about this happening might've had a good point. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. We'll have to wait and see, see how it plays out, you know, as the kids say, but uh, there there might be some truth to that. Maybe um, it wasn't the best idea putting the red belt on another outsider, Uh, you know, even, even though it was Kenny Omega with AEW, because so far they haven't been showing that they are committed to, you know, strengthening that relationship or, or helping it in that way. Right. And also one last note too, you know, new Japan, they're doing a ton of stuff with impact here in the States. Um, so it's very interesting. Yeah. You know, they're doing a WrestleMania weekend show. We're seeing a lot of crossover. Kushida, Kevin Knight, machine guns on the impact broadcast. So it seems at this point that, you know, new Japan doing more stuff with impact than they are with AEW. Well, and you know, it, it, again, it's the prerogative of AEW. I'm not saying they have to promote New Japan. Where I find fault with it is the fact that New Japan is constantly promoting them. Now, take let's not mince words. In this power dynamic, New Japan is the number. They're the B side. Although, obviously, in Japan, they're the A side. So that's kind of the trade off there. But. It, AEW is a much more profitable and larger company, even just in their short existence, you know, um, yeah. and they've, they've got the television presence with uh, TNT and Warner Brothers Discovery and all that. So they definitely have the upper hand when it comes to the power dynamic, but they're, it's not that far off. They're not completely non, you know, equals. They're pretty close to one another. And New Japan does a lot to promote AEW in, in a lot of different ways. And so far, AEW really isn't doing that. I mean, they do what they want to do on their time in their way. But anytime their guys come over and do anything, they're not showing that same level of commitment. I mean, it, it's, it's as simple as like, it doesn't even have to be on the television program. Send a tweet. <laughs> send, send a fucking tweet. You know what I mean? Put yeah. up an infographic. Like, come on. Like, this is this is amateur hour, the way that they're handling this stuff. And, you know, we've been pretty quiet on it for a long time. And I think it's time for 
us to at least, you know, acknowledge it, especially since who knows when Kenny's coming back with the red belt or if at all. And hypothetically, if he does leave, that kind of fucks Will Ospreay, don't you think? Yeah, definitely leaves Will in a bad position with his whole story arc kind of being, you know, he needs to get back, you know, to, to the top to beat Kenny Omega. Um, so, yeah, it really does kind of put Will in kind of a weird spot if Kenny is not going to be able to come to New Japan anytime soon. Yeah, and there's probably people listening like you fucking idiots. We told we you. We told you so. <laughs> Jeremy, Josh, y'all don't know nothing. <laughs> y'all wrong. <laughs> oh, man. But, you know, you, you mentioned uh, New Japan and AEW being uh, pretty much equal. Well, one area that they're not equal in is uh, production in the United States. Which leads us to talk about uh, Battle in the Valley, which happened uh, this past Saturday on pay-per-view on Fight TV. Uh, well, that's another thing we need to talk about, uh, the, the pay-per-view issue. Yeah, we had a couple questions that will kind of lead into that. Uh, Def Triangle 720 says, if New Japan breaks their deal with Fight TV, who should they let manage the production in the U.S.? Should New Japan just stop using Fight TV and put these shows on World and use their Japanese team for production? Okay, okay, 890 says, does New Japan need to take a break from the U.S. until they finally get their shit together and can run a smooth pay-per-view production-wise? Less Commission 7252, does this Battle of the Valley show feel flat until it was time for the double main events? Um, so, yeah, so, you know, once again, um, you know, another U.S. pay-per-view has come on Fight TV and several uh, production issues at the start of the show. Uh, the pre-show, the the YouTube stream didn't never started for the pre-show, um, and then if you tried to watch the pre-show on Fight TV, it had no sound for the duration of the pre-show, and then uh, after the uh, Finley Fish match, uh, the screen kind of melted into the you know the Netflix rainbow. Then uh, the main show was supposed to start um, at 10 p.m. Eastern, and it, once again, you just kind of saw that the screen melting and several tweets saying, you know, it'll start soon. It'll start soon. It'll start five after the hour. It'll start 10, 10 minutes, 15 minutes, like 45 minutes later, the show finally started. And once it did start, um, I guess production was fine. You know, I would tried. you know, we ordered this on on Fight TV. Um, you know, we did our best here to try to support New Japan and, you know, a, a good card. And which which, by the way, let me just say, after nearly six years of doing this show, they should be giving us um, passcode. They should be comping us to watch these fucking shows. I'm just saying. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we, we bought the pay-per-view and, you know, I went in, you know, pre-show time, 930, whatever I started to, to watch a pre-show. And I'm here. I'm thinking, oh, something must be wrong with my laptop because the picture was great. And <laughs> <laughs> picture was great, but I'm no audio. So I'm like taking the TV volume, taking my laptop volume, and like every, all sounds up. And then I, I go to Twitter and everybody's complaining about no sound. I'm like, oh boy. I'm like, you know, hopefully it's the it, pre- it's like It's like when you're in a relationship and they're abusive and they keep, or maybe they're just a fuck up or whatever. I don't know. And they keep telling you they're going to change. And you really believe them. And it's like the fourth or fifth time, but they're like, I'm doing this and I'm doing that and I'm going to therapy and blah, blah, blah. I'm getting my life in order. You're like, I really think they're, I really think they've turned a corner here. I think that everything's different. And then they fucking do it again. That's what this was like. Are you serious? You guys are really doing this again? (laughs) 
For oh, real? Yeah, dude. Like, come on, bro. Dude, I was so frustrated. I'm like, <laughs> trying to watch this show. I'm like, all right, you know what? The pre-show, fine. Coglin and Kratos, Finley and Fish is fine. That they're gonna figure out this mistake. They're gonna start on time. They it's in the tweet out. They're like, yeah, we know there's issues. We're gonna have it ready to go for the start of the main card. I'm like, all right, great. No worries. It was just a pre-show. <laughs> Ten o'clock comes, and that screen is all jacked up. They're still not going. I couldn't believe it. I was flabbergasted. It, it got to like ten thirty. I'm like, I put in the group chat like. I give up for the night. I'll try again tomorrow because I was not <laughs> staying up. Like I already had to get up early uh, to serve in church the next day. I was like, I'm not staying up any later. I'll I'll catch it the next day. Well, I I was watching um, the opposition show over in uh, Montreal. <laughs> <laughs> the Fed. I won't, I won't, yeah, I was watching the Fed, which I'm not even going to go into all that. But like, God, did they kill Sami Zayn? <laughs> 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 Anyways. Um, you know, and it was getting late, and, like, I was, like, just looking and looking in the show. You know, the New Japan show was getting pushed further and further back, and I was like, I guess this is good for me because I'll miss less of the show when I switch over, but it's also horrible because I'm seeing the timeline and everyone is freaking out and having all these, you know, aforementioned issues that you brought up. I click over to the show, and it was in the middle of the Fred Rosser and – um Kent to match it. The things I noticed was like, okay, the the visuals, like the actual camera work, looked pretty good. The the images were mostly clear, but the sound mixing was really, really, really bad. Um, now, to me, this felt all throughout the night like a really dead show. I've been told by reliable sources that were there that well, secondhand people that talked to people that were there uh, that said that the show was extremely hot, like a, like a rabid hot crowd. I don't know if I buy that because there were times where you could hear them coming through muted and it, it sounded low, but there was a lot of times throughout the show where it just, I didn't hear anything. And I don't know if that's just bad mixing or if that was just a lack of enthusiasm to me, the crowd felt like a dead crowd, but it could be a combination of the two. Yeah. Overall, can, I mean, overall, I think cause I, I ended up watching the full thing the next day, so I don't know if they fix what they, they fixed. fixed some of it. Yeah, I mean, I, overall, the crowd did sound like they were into most of the show. I will say, when it came to the New Japan of America, New Japan strong talent, you can tell this crowd was not super familiar with a filthy Tom Waller, a right. West Coast Wrecking Crew, the, the you know the New Japan version of Fred Rosser. They weren't super familiar with the guys that they've been pushing here in the U.S., and their reactions uh, were smaller compared to the bigger stars like a Kenta, um, like a Okada, like uh, Mercedes Monet. Um, totally different reactions to those to the stars versus the guys that have been building the New Japan of America brand. Right. I guess what what's perplexing about that to me and why I didn't like the crowd necessarily is because, like, okay, you take, like, for instance, um, Clark Connors, you know? Right he wasn't necessarily a known commodity at like say forbidden door. Now granted it's a, it's a rabid fan base over there in Chicago and it was a fine crowd and everything, but they weren't giving him very much reaction. And by the end of that night, he was over like he was getting monster reactions because he has working boots on and he came and did the same on this night. And the crowd just, 
didn't seem to click with those guys they didn't know. Like they were they were there to cheer the, the people they knew and they loved, and the people they didn't know they really didn't care. It didn't matter how hard how hard they worked, they like weren't going to turn the crowd. Which I I don't know, but I did notice that anytime someone took a bump or anytime the referee pounded the mat to give the official count, it was still fairly low, fairly muted. So, you know, it, it's still a production snafu, and the the commentary team sounded so loud, like they added it in post, although it was still live. You could hear that way above everything else. It sounded like one of those AAA English, <laughs> you know, commentary teams where you can barely hear the, ba- you know, because they, they lowered everything so they could bring in the English commentary. That's what this sounded like. Well, and, um, well there was one, there was a couple matches where like during the entrance, like the music was super loud and they were super low. Oh yeah, that did happen. You're right. All of this is basically to say this. Um, you're the number three company, and it's the same rant I have every time. You're the number three company in the world. You're trying to make an impression in North America. You're trying to sell pay-per-views. So you're, you're asking people to lay down 20 bucks, roughly. And this is the, the level of production. I don't get it. And the reason I really, I'm really bothered by it is because Ring of Honor never had issues like this and still has, even in its new iteration, doesn't have issues like this. MLW, when they do shows, doesn't have issues like this. Neither does uh, Impact. GCW. Which are all, or GCW. Or any mom and pop small super indie Bro, that you see. Tampa Bay Pro Wrestling. I could have watched a full Tampa Bay Pro Wrestling show on Fight TV, but I could not watch Battle in the Valley live. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And um, now here's the thing, too. I don't know the technical aspects of all this. I I hear people, I hear your questions, and they're saying things to the extent of they need to drop fight. And maybe they do. But I'm not 100% sold that this is a fight issue necessarily. It could be, or it um, it might be something else. Like, because... The the way that this was shot and the way the production looked, it didn't look the way that any of these other New Japan of America shows have looked recently in the past couple of years. It, it they brought like, in they brought in the Bushi Road uh, production team, right? And so it's like I don't think Fight is the one actually doing the production on this show. I think it was, from my understanding, Bushi Road or or they got support from Bushi Road in some way. I guess we could do our due diligence and ask around, but um, you know. My understanding of it is there's several different aspects to this production aside from just shooting it. There's also like uploading it and broadcasting it. And maybe that's an issue with Bushi Road, maybe, or I'm sorry, with Fight. Maybe it's not. I, I don't actually know who is to blame here. What I do know is at the end of the day, regardless of what service they use, regardless of who they you know, outsource to do their work for them. It's their brand. It's their reputation. It's their name. And they, it falls on new Japan more than it does anybody else. And Hey, if it does require them dropping fight and going with some other distribution, although I don't know if there's a a good alternative, maybe that's what they need to do. But the bottom line is this shit is embarrassing. It is literally super low-grade minor league scum-of-the-earth bullshit. Like, it's not something that should ever be happening. And the fact that they are charging 
multiple times per year for these shows and they are subpar <laughs> to what we're getting for free on New Japan World is a travesty and it's not helping them. It, it's really, really bad. It's really bad. I didn't watch the show live that night either because once they did push it back, at first it was like beneficial, but then I, you know, coming off of a red hot Montreal crowd to this was already, it was like totally, I'll, I'll just say it, like, even though this probably had better wrestling, that show looked and was presented so much better. This was hard to watch. And then it was so late at night. I just tuned out. I was like, I'll, I did the same thing as you. I was like, it's already so late. I'm just going to watch it tomorrow. And they did fix some things in post. What they did not fix in post, I learned today, they did not fix the pre-show. Yeah, I, I didn't go back and try to watch a pre-show, so I didn't even know if they did fix that or not. So if you watch the pre-show on Fight, it's just completely devoid of sound, right? Mm-hmm. If you try and watch the pre-show on YouTube, it has sound, but there's no commentary, and then the sound is all fucking wonky and weird. And the show starts in the middle, actually it starts about eight minutes into the Kratos and um, Alex Coughlin match. And their match only went about 10 minutes. So you, it, it starts with about two minutes left to go. So what I had to do, I had to watch the first eight minutes in silence on fight and sync up the point where the audio kicks in on YouTube and then put the YouTube back on. I shouldn't be having to do shit like this in 2020. It's the stuff I had to do in 2006 when I wanted to watch ROH, you know, on the internet like i shouldn't be having to do this stuff yeah and think too you know all the new fans coming in all the mercedes uh money fans all these new fans the the buzz off of the kenny will match like there's a an increase of new japan world subscribers people interested in watching new japan again you know a great opportunity to you know have a fresh start here in, in america and kick off this new uh pay-per-view model with a with strong show and they totally they, they dropped the ball here and i i don't know who's at fault like you're saying could be fight tv could be new japan could be whoever but uh at the end of the day like this is not the first time that this is happening and like you said it's absolutely embarrassing it, it, it's ridiculous that um in 2023 that they still can't figure out how to get a pay-per-view um to come out looking like a quality pay-per-view when you have you, you mentioned these mom and pop independents, our local independent here in Tampa has able to figure it out, and and New Japan, the third uh, biggest company in the world, cannot figure out how to get a pay per view on the air with no issues whatsoever. I totally agree. <laughs> um, and yeah, so as for the pre show, uh, I I didn't see much of it because I when I was trying to watch, I was trying to fight with my computer to see what was going on. And I did not go back to watch it, but I guess we can uh, start there. Actually, before that, um, CM Punk was at the show. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, he was seen in the stands during the pre-show, and then he was uh, backstage for the main card. Uh, Dr. Larry the Dark says, fans saw Punk at the show. Would Bushi Road run Punk versus Kenta in the U.S.? No. <laughs> um, no, they would not run Punk versus Kenta in the U.S., because CM Punk would never wrestle in a millionaire's Kenta. Yeah, there's a lot of uh, legitimate heat there uh, between those two guys. Uh, but, I mean, maybe they are, though, courting Punk potentially for uh, New Japan U.S. appearance. We don't know quite what his status is with 
uh, AEW. Yeah, some people are saying that, you know, a contract buyout's on the plate, that he could be getting released, no compete. Uh, so it's kind of unclear what his AEW status is. Um, so maybe there is potential for New Japan to, to bring Punk in to try and bolster up these U.S. pay-per-views. I have no interest in watching CM Punk wrestle anywhere, really, realistically. Um, so, yeah, seeing him come to New Japan, I mean, I can't even think of matches. I mean, and you know what? I'm probably there's, – there's definitely a different demographic of fan that love the guy and would probably – tune in but just me personally as a fan i can't think of any matches that i would really want to see that involve cm punk like on paper you know yeah like I, I, you could throw out a big name i don't i don't want to see punk versus okada i don't want to see punk versus shingo i don't want to see punk versus ishii i don't want to see uh punk versus osprey like i don't want to see any of that yeah him and tanahashi none of that's really appealing to me and granted punk is a good worker Right. But I just, aside from all the backstage shenanigans and his reputation and everything like that, when it comes to his in ring ability, I don't think he can keep up personally. I don't think he can keep up with the modern style of work, especially in Japan. Um, I think what he was doing in the US was fine for AEW, where it's a variety show and they. You know, they have a little bit of everything. When you tune into an AEW show, you know, you get the high flying, you get the brawl, you get the blood, you get the technical stuff, yada, yada, yada. Um, but he was doing like Bret Hart tribute matches and the very, very old school 80s and 90s style of work. And that stuff is, it's appealing. I mean, obviously I'm, I'm a old school wrestling fan myself, but from the, the athletic standpoint, I just don't think he could keep up. You know what I mean? Like, right. And I, I just can't think of a single one of those matches where I think he would excel. Yeah, I think it's definitely, uh, you know, th- that kind of time period for Punk to work in New Japan, I think kind of passed him by. Like you mentioned, just seeing him in uh, AEW, you know, not keeping up with some of the young guys there, like Hangman Page, like uh, Darby Allen. It, it, was, it was pretty rough there, so... Him stepping in the ring with uh, Kazuchika Okada. I'm sure Okada has the ability to probably carry him through a match, but I don't know if Punk would be able to carry his end of things in a, in a match like that. Right, yeah. I mean, I definitely think that he can have competent wrestling matches. That's not what I'm saying, but in terms of working at that higher... let's. Let, I mean, let's not mince words. Punk is a main eventer. No matter where he goes in the world, he's going to be at the top of the card. And... New Japan has a certain um, level of work when it comes to their in-ring style. And I don't think he can keep up athletically. I don't think he can work that long at that frenetic of a pace. Uh, I also don't think that he's about that life when it comes to the hard-hitting nature of Japanese wrestling. And, I mean, you look at his whole career, very few people have ever actually pushed Punk in that way. He's always been an old school guy, very soft worker, very light touch, nothing wrong with it. But I mean, I can think of two to actually off the top of my head, maybe three. I can think of two to actually, yeah, definitely. Like the, the only guys I can think of that I can ever really remember pushing this guy in, in that physical style is Samoa Joe, mm-hmm. Eddie Kingston, yeah. and Brock Lesnar. 
those were all exceptions to the rule. This guy does not like to get hit. He doesn't like to hit. He doesn't like to work that style. I just don't see him being a good fit in New Japan. And I could see a match with him and Okada being very similar to the Chris Jericho Okada match from Dominion, which was a little bit of a letdown. And personally, and I'm not saying this to Barry Punk, but like, I think Jericho over the past four years has shown more that he has more in his gas tank than Punk does, even after the long layoff. Yeah. So I'm just, you know, putting all the personal stuff aside, just from an in-ring perspective, I don't have interest in seeing him wrestle in New Japan if that were even on the table. Yeah, absolutely the same here. All right, well, let's talk about Battle in the Valley. So, um... Oh, also, the it, I don't know what the deal was, but I saw pictures, and it looked like a bunch of the fans were lining up to try and meet and greet the guy while he was up in the stands. That's shitty. <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, I don't know. If, if, if I'm at a wrestling show, okay, for instance... I've been to wrestling shows, WrestleMania weekend with big stars. I, I literally watched Bloodsport with Jeff Cobb and others. Like I, a friend of a friend knew Jeff Cobb. So I watched Bloodsport in New York with Jeff. And just down like a couple seats down from us was John Moxley, who was still signed at WWE at the time and William Regal. And nobody at that GCW show was lining up to try and like meet the guys, including Mox, who's a big fucking star. And he was, you know what I mean? Like Mm -hmm. when, when, when wrestlers are there in that capacity, like Dave or like Dave was there too, like Dave Meltzer and stuff when they're there, like watching the show, like, and it's in the middle of the show, like don't line up to meet the wrestler. Like if you get a chance to say hello at an appropriate time, either before or after the show, sure. But don't leave your seat, <laughs> go up in the rafters and congregate and line up like you're at a meet and greet. To, <laughs> like that's they're they're just human beings trying to like be there, watch the show and enjoy it. Like, I don't know that that looked like a failure of security and, you know, in my uh, opinion. Yeah, I mean, yeah, a riot, a mob could have happened <laughs> in the middle of the crowd, um, but luckily look, it didn't. But yeah, yeah you could've... never know a punk. He might backhand a fan. You never know. <laughs> I've seen him do it before. Larry could have bit somebody <laughs> if he if he was there. You know, bro. Do you remember when he backhanded that guy? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and that the guy he backhanded wasn't even the dude that slapped him in the head at all. Yeah, <laughs> that shit was funny. Oh man. But all right, let's actually talk about the uh, the the matches here from Battle in the Valley. So uh, the pre-show. Opened up with uh, Alex Coughlin defeating J.R. Kratos and Dave Finley defeating Bobby Fish. Like I said, they didn't really get to see much of the action here. Did you have any thoughts on these? Yeah, I watched them. Um, I, I liked the the work from the first match better. Uh, I think it's a little unfortunate that Alex Coughlin and J.R. Kratos were on the pre-show. And then there were so many production snafus because this match was very, very good. Um I think probably the ratings I saw online are more so indicative of the production as opposed to the in-ring work. If you've seen these two guys wrestle before, you kind of know what to expect. Big, beefy, hoss men fighting and throwing each other around and striking the shit out of each other was really great. And it felt like the payoff to a very long storied rivalry between these guys that's sort of been simmering under the surface all throughout New Japan Strong. And, most people aren't talking or even 
fully aware of it because of the platform that it's on, unfortunately. But the match was very good. Kratos looked great. Obviously, Coughlin did too. And both guys played their parts very well. Anytime Coughlin, you know, was giving this guy suplexes or body slams uh, or the bridging back power slam thing that he does, it was just really impressive. Ultimately, at the end of the uh, the match, Coughlin was able to uh, power out of a top rope spot where he was about to be, you know, probably defeated and uh, reversed it. And he got a uh, German suplex on um, Jared Kratos for the definitive one, two, three, kind of hearkening back to the big surprise upset win that he had first gotten over Kratos during his challenge series mm-hmm. before he graduated. So kind of a nice little tie in there. I would have gone about three and a half on the match. Um, if they only got 10 minutes, if they'd been given a little bit more time and been put in front of a crowd that was a little more hot for this could have gone even higher. The, the work was impeccable and they were really hitting each other. Big lariats, big elbow strikes, lots of chops. If, if you're a fan of that hard physical, I mean, this, this match on this show was the closest thing to like your, traditional strong style fight-esque sort of match. You know, mm-hmm. this filled in for the lack of a Goto or Ishii or Shingo. It was really good. Nice. And so now what about uh, Finley and Fish? You know, that was one I, for some weird reason, there was more sound issues than there was with Kratos and Coglin. Um, it looked mostly like a, a Bobby Fish body part match. I wasn't really digging it that much. <laughs> um Ultimately, uh, Dave Finley picked up the win there. I was trying to see if there were any sort of hints as to what would happen later in the night when it came to Dave Finley. Um, I'm not sure that I noticed that there were, but in all transparency, I wasn't paying as close attention to to this match as I was the first one. Um, it, it was harder to get into with the, the sound production issues. So if there, maybe I overlooked something, if there was something that, alluded to you know david finley's uh actions later in the night i i probably missed it but uh he picked up the win here and you know off, off we go yeah so then oh, that- also for some reason bobby fish was the most over of these four guys on this night i guess because <laughs> they're in california yeah and you know that that uh aw rub <laughs> yeah i don't know but like yeah bobby fish over <laughs> Uh, so then the the main card started off with Kevin Knight, Kushida, the DKC, and Volador Jr. defeating Adrian Quest, Josh Alexander, Mascar Dorada, and our good friend Rocky Romero, 11 minutes and 22 seconds. Uh, we had a lot going on here in this match. So uh, Kushida is going to be challenging Josh Alexander for the Impact World title during that uh, WrestleMania weekend show. Uh, we got the the rivalry between Rocky Romero and Borador Jr. going on. Um, the DKC looks like he's officially graduated from the LA Dojo. He came out with uh, new gear on yeah, for the show. Yeah, kind of like Cobra Kai inspired gear, looking like a little bit. Yeah. Um, so yeah, those, those are some of the some of the story elements that were uh, kind of playing out in the match here. Of course, Adrian Quest was a. Uh, one of the uh, kind of students of Rocky Romero, kind of a protege of Rocky Romero during the, the strong run here. So a lot of different story elements here. What do you think about this uh, opener? Um, yeah, I thought that this was really, really fun. Very 
you know, fast paced, high flying oriented. And I thought they did a good job working in the, the individual story elements for the different feuds that you just brought up. Um, one thing I did notice, they were calling Rocky Romero the NWA World Welterweight Champion. That's not correct. Or I'm not, I'm sorry, not NWA, CMLL. He is the CMLL World Historic Welterweight Champion. That is a different title than the CMLL World Welterweight Championship, which there is also that title. They're two different titles. It reminds me of when... Um, Remember when uh, Jeff Jarrett was the AAA mega champion and he brought that title to TNA? They were calling him the Mexican heavyweight champion. Yeah. It's like, bro, that's not what that title is called. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I think they probably just thought, like, do we really need to put historic in there? Can we just call him the world champion? Like, yeah, just do it. it it's confusing to put historic in there. Yeah, these, these fans won't know any better. <laughs> they don't know. They don't watch. They don't watch Arena Mexico. But um, yeah, I thought I thought that the, the match was really great. Everyone was high flying, putting you know their their working boots on, and lots of flips, lots of dives, lots of great sequences. I think one of the biggest highlights from this match, and almost every match that he's in, was the aerial um, stylings of one Kevin Knight when he got that uh, drop kick off that doomsday device set up, up, I mean, that's super high there and very, very, very impressive. Um, yeah. I like this a lot. Yeah. Very good. Uh, open here. really enjoyed this matchup here. Like you mentioned, I think Kevin Knight was probably the standout here just with his, you know, he has that kind of charisma and star power kind of dripping off of him already at such a young age and young stage in his career. Like you mentioned that big drop kick off the shoulders. Um, great mover there. Um, and he actually ended up uh, picking up the win here. He was able to hit that uh, pendulum uh, DDT to uh, the DKC, his uh, LA Dojo counterpart, for the win. Uh, when he did that, Kushida had uh, Josh Alexander in the hoverboard lock. So setting that up. And then a post-match, uh, Vorador and Rocky got into a post-match brawl. And I believe they're coming up. There's going to be like a fatal four-way uh, hair match coming up in CMLL, which both these guys will be a part of. And, uh. and in all this match, Rocky was acting uh, very heelish, which, you know, he's been a heel in CMLL in Mexico with this feud of Bulldore. So kind of really leaning into the sneaky style here. It was a point earlier in the match where uh, Bulldore got tagged in. He tagged out. And then once Bulldore was down, he tagged back in. It was laying the boots of Bulldore. So uh, kind of seeing the, the heel uh, Rocky Romero here in the U.S. on, on New Japan um, so I don't know what the plan is going forward, but maybe we'll see more of this feud play out on these America shows as long as uh, Rocky is doing CMLL dates. Uh, one other thing, loved the interactions between Volador and Mascara Dorada. Mm, yeah. Yeah, that Lucha shit was awesome. Uh, Josh Alexander ruled, everyone ruled in this match. It was just very, very fun. Very, very This is a great way to open the show. Yeah. Uh, then following that, we had the NJPW Strong Open Weight Title Match. Kenta defeated Fred Rosser, sixteen minutes and thirty-one seconds. I was not that high on this match personally. Um, I feel like Kenta definitely is over with the New Japan audience, um, and I feel like a lot of that is due to. You know, his historic name and 
everything that he did on the indies back in the mid 2000s and his WWE run, like uh, he's a legend, you know, mm-hmm. all the, all the Noah shit, but in modern times, I think more so than his work, what people like about Kenta is his backstage promos and some of the comedic stuff that he does. Like recently he's been doing like the power walking in his matches and just kind of like little, and there's nothing wrong with it. Those things are, what kind of show his charisma and his personality and kind of endear him to the crowd. And I feel like that more so than him actually going out there and having great matches is what's over with the audience. But on this night, I don't know. I just didn't feel personally like him and Fred Rosser meshed super well. Not That's not to say that this match was bad. I felt like it was a mixed bag there would be points where they would be doing things that I thought were really great. And I'm like, man, that's really good. And then they would follow it up with something that I thought was just really weird and wonky and not good at all. And it was like a constant up and down. And you know, when I was training in wrestling, you know, my trainer, he would be like, you need to take people on a ride. You know, you, you can't just always be high. You have to have a low point. So you have somewhere to go. And I felt like that's what they were doing, but in the, in the wrong way. <laughs> Every time they get a high point, they, they, they followed up with, that brought me back down in a way that I didn't want to go down. Um, and part of that might be not just Kenta, it might be Fred Rosser. Um, I, I have a lot of respect for Fred and I think that he really raised his stock quite a bit um, during this pandemic era, but this title run has not been it. And, a lot of his in-ring work, he's a good worker, but there are just things that he does. Like, for instance, some of the ass-based offense just doesn't work for me. Like, the big, like, butt drop and stuff like that, it's just really weird. Right, um, yeah. I don't know. Some of that stuff doesn't work for me. But, like, I did like when they were brawling in the audience at the beginning of the match. That was really good heat, and the crowd was super into it. And I was like, oh, we're getting, like, you know, Stone Cold and Brett type vibes here, but it just kind of died. And they kept, I just felt like they kept getting lost in the match. It felt like they didn't know where they were going, but the strike exchanges between, there was one point where like Kenta was giving him a right arm and uh, like a right elbow. And then um, Fred was doing something I don't usually see people do is he was responding on the same side with his left arm and giving him like a jab. And he gave him like three or four of those before he reverted back to, you know, trading big right hands as well. And I was like, that's pretty cool. I never seen someone give like a short, like front facing elbow that way. That looked really cool. So there were definitely things I liked, but it just, the match was 16 minutes plus. I felt like it went a little long. It was kind of meandering. The heat was, you know, up and down. And then they went with a fuck finish with a ref bump and it wouldn't be the first time we'd get a ref bump on the night. It just felt too Americanized, especially after I just got done watching like a WWE show that was chock full of this shit. I I don't know. Like I I don't know if this is the way I want to see the strong open weight title change hands, but I think that they did the ref bump to give a visual win to uh Fred to kind of protect him since he's the baby face here. So I do get that. But uh I just I didn't love this match. I'd probably go like three and a quarter on it. Yeah, I'm pretty much in, in the same boat with you. I think mixed bag, like you said, is the perfect way to describe it, and especially for Kenta because his matches lately is, is they're, they're a mix of the old Kenta and the new Kenta. 
So yep. there'll be parts of the match where you mentioned it where he's doing the striking. He's kicking them in the face. He's doing these chops. He's doing the, the, the spinning back fist. And you're like, all right, you know, we're getting 2005 Noah Kenta up in here. And then he'll go, he'll do the power walk. He'll do the ref bump. He'll, you know, do all this egregious cheating. And you're like, okay, now we're getting 2023 New Japan Kenta. And his matches lately have been this weird mix of both of those combined. So like you're saying, you get on this high, he's doing all these cool 2005 combos and stuff. And then you go to the low when he's doing, you know, kind of the more cheating, kind of meandering stuff that he's been doing um, in his New Japan run. Um, and then Fred Ross, you're like, you know, we talked about uh, CM Punk earlier not being about that life and getting striked. I'm not 100% sure Fred Rosser is about that life yet. Because um, there are certain moments in this match and other matches where he's getting hit in the face and, and it looks like he's uncomfortable with it or he's kind of like clinching and he's not really look, look like he's really wanting to do it. And, uh, you know, there's the whole kind of weird spot here where like Kenta's like kicking him in the face in the corner and he kind of like he doesn't want to take it and not in a way of where like, all right, I don't want to get kicked in the face like in a, in a match in a kayfabe way. It's like a seriously like, I don't really want to take this guy's kick in the face. And, to me, it just kind of came off kind of weird, and then from there it goes to that spot you were talking about where they kind of go out in the crawl, the crowd and brawl. Which that part was hot, was a hot part of the match, but it was kind of weird getting there. Like he's eating kicks in the face, and he gets up and just goes outside. It's like shouldn't you like stand up, fire up, and like start striking this guy back in the face instead of just rolling outside and trying to fight to the outside? So there was some weird stuff like that in the match, but yeah, there was a lot of good strike exchanges. Uh, throughout the match, but just kind of had that weird kind of pacing, weird chemistry uh, with these guys. But uh, like you mentioned, uh, towards the end there, um, Fred Rosser, he, he had uh, Kenta in, in the chicken wing, and, and Kenta pulled the ref on top of him, which somehow got Rosser to break the hold up. Uh, which oh, that was that was something, too, where up to that point, I, I thought the match was pretty mixed, but I was still kind of like not dead set on what my final opinion was but that whole entire interaction where they pulled the they're in that submission hold and kenta pulls the referee onto them it just looked weird like mm-hmm. how did him pull i mean if they had done it in a way where like he yanked the referee and the referee like banged into them in an impactful way that like could have believably broke up the uh the the submission that would have probably worked for me but instead he like slowly rolled him onto him and then they were like all shuffling. And I was like, are they doing a sex act? Like what the (laughs) fuck is happening right now? And then they all just equally parted ways and rolled over. And then like Fred, I don't think Fred Rosser knew how to sell it. And he was like, he just banged the mat and he's like, and like, I was like, that's his reaction did not match the interaction that happened there. And it just threw a lot of the match off for me. And I was like, this is what I'm talking about. Like this doesn't work. There's some, there's a disconnect here. It's really fucking yeah. weird. So yeah, so Kenta then sends yeah, the roster into the referee. Uh, roster gets Kenta in the STF. Kenta taps out, but the ref's still down. Uh, then Juice Robinson, rock hard. Juice Robinson makes his way down to the ring. Apparently, he had a roll of quarters in his hand. Couldn't really see because of production, but he hit, I saw it. He hit the uh, the left hand of God with the roll of quarters in his hands to knock out Rosser. Then Kenta picked him up, hit the go-to-sleep, and Kenta wins and becomes the new strong openweight champion. And I am so confused about this because Juice, like, 
signed with AEW, right? Mm-hmm. And then they were not calling him Rock Hard Juice Robinson. They were just calling him Juice Robinson. He had the match with uh, um, on the ROH pay per view. He had the match with Samoa Joe, and he was wearing non Bullet Club gear, just like completely a total different entity. And they were not making mention to Bullet Club in any way. Then recently, they did uh, start referring to him again as Rock Hard Juice Robinson in his most recent television match. He had a match with what Darby, right? Yeah. But there was not no mention of Bullet Club in any way. So I was like, okay, I guess he's just quietly been removed from New Japan and the Bullet Club, and he's just doing his own thing in AEW slash Ring of Honor. Then he shows up on this show unannounced, and he has the BC gear on. I'm like, the fuck is this? <laughs> is this guy in the Bullet Club or not? Like, this all this does is strengthen my resolve when I say things like. Jeff Jarrett is still part of the Bullet Club. We never saw him leave. Just because he doesn't show up doesn't mean one day he might not roll out with a black and white t-shirt on. <laughs> Apparently anyone could, Juice could. One of these days, Amber Gallows, the Bullet Babe, is going to show up. <laughs> okay? Oh, man. Her and Cody Hall. <laughs> and they're you know they're going to run rough shot over everybody. You just oh, never boy. know. <laughs> Hey man, they say Bullet Club is for life, and and they, and they mean it. Unless, I unless, guess so. Unless you get kicked like, out, you're Bullet Club for life. Yeah, like what the fuck? What's going on? And so is Juice Juice is Bullet Club? Is he not? I don't know. Does he work for this company? Does he not? I, I don't, don't know. know. <laughs> yeah, that Lex Luger. You know what that's from? Uh, I just saw the clip. Yeah, we got a clip of, of Lex Luger's being interviewed. He's like, I don't know. It's, <laughs> it's from um, it's from WWA. Do you remember that shit? No. There was so when TNA was being launched at, in the early infancy days, like when it was still a weekly pay per view. The other big alternative that was launching at the same time was over in Australia and New Zealand. It was the WWA. Oh, yeah. That's ringing a bell now. Yeah. Yeah. And most of the guys that were working TNA were working the WWA pay-per-views. And, like, they had a a bunch of the, like, Road Dog and, like, Lex Luger. And it it was a weird show. And, like, Sabu was working on those shows. (laughs) And, yeah, Luger was, like, one of their top stars. That's where that, that promo video is from. Where that backstage interview is fucking funny. I saw from Botchamania. <laughs> yeah. And then eventually, like, that show, I think they only ran, like, six shows. And then it, it went belly under. And the world champion of WWA was Sting. And he had to unify his title with uh, Jeff Jarrett. Jeff Jarrett unified the WWA title into the NWA title. Mm, Jeff Jarrett yeah. always wins. <laughs> uh, we had a question here from Rambo and Slam Pig. Uh, what are your thoughts on Kenta showing at Battle in the Valley and in general, I thought that this was one of his best ending performances in a long time. Do you think he has made specific changes to his style to accommodate age and injury? If so, what do you think those were? Oh, I think it's undoubt. Uh, like undoubtedly, he's done that. I mean, if if you've watched him for any period of time, you know that he's not um, the same level of worker that he was, you know, a decade ago or whatever. Um, now. Granted, are there times where he has good to great matches? Definitely. But while, you know, before I even saw this question for him, Bone Slam Pig, I, I took a look at his cage match database. And obviously, cage match isn't the end all be all, but it kind of gives you a good idea. The one person 
that he has regularly worked with over the past like two to three years that he consistently has over eight, which is like the equivalent of like a four star match is Zack Sabre Jr. And Mm -hmm. those are typically in the G1. Like almost every year him and Zack have some sort of G1 match that like exceeds expectations, but almost everybody he works with, they're, they're far below those grades. Like I personally, I can't remember the last time I was actually genuinely excited about Kenta wrestling pretty much anybody in this company. Probably for me, it probably goes all the way back to his initial run and his feud with Tomohiro Ishii. Yeah. In 2019. Yeah. And I think that's kind of where the luster got uh, lifted for me where I, I just kind of accepted that, this Kenta is not the same as the Kenta I knew before. And I kind of have to make peace with that. And, you know, he, he is good, but you know, I I don't see him as being like a top guy anymore personally. And uh, I think he's probably a better fit to carry the title considering the run that uh, we just had with Fred where, you know, I I thought Fred was great in chasing Tom Lawler you know, chasing him as a vengeful baby face. But once he got the belt and it's not all his fault, I don't think they did him a lot of favors from a creative standpoint, but uh, this, this title run wasn't really anything memorable. He had seven title defenses and most of them were, in my opinion, throwaway matches, you know, like uh, performance wise, most of them were not very memorable. So at least I think with Kenta being a domestic guy, kind of opens up the door a little bit more for him to work with other domestic talent or, you know, kind of give that rub to people on the, on the, their way up that are trying to make their way into new Japan. So I think it's a, maybe a little more interesting at least. Yeah. I think with Kenta, you know, he does have a, a big fan base here in the U S based off his WWE run. And so, um, you know, obviously deep Puro fans love him and what he's done in, in Noah. And so I think he's a good guy as far as trying to capture Western eyes for U.S. pay-per-views. So I understand why they did a detail change there. But as far as his style, I definitely think, you know, his body has been through a lot um, physically. And, you know, he had all those shoulder injuries in WWE. And then recently that, that uh, hardcore match with Tanahashi his body's been through a lot, and he knows that. And so, smartly, as a veteran, I think he has adapted to kind of hide his uh, weaknesses. And like you mentioned, doing more of the, the power walking stuff, more of the cheating, being more of a personality. Like, his body of work kind of speaks for itself. So, at this point in his career, I think he's, you know, leaning more into being a personality and a character versus trying to be, you know, that 2005 Kenta, which he knows that he can't, and I think it's kind of good in a way that he's not trying to do that because he probably couldn't do that, and it would probably lead him to getting more injuries. So I do think, you know, as from a veteran standpoint and conserving your bumps and health, I think he has done a good job of kind of adapting that. But like we were saying earlier, it doesn't kind of fully mesh when he's trying when he does do the you know oh five Kenta stuff. It doesn't really mesh with this, you know, 2023 Bull Club Kenta. I need to protect myself stuff. Yeah. Uh, so following that, we had the NJPW Strong Openweight Tag Team title match where the Motor City Machine Guns, Alex Shelley and Chris Sabin 
They defeat the West Coast Wrecking Crew of Jarrell Nelson and Royce Isaacs, nine minutes and 21 seconds. Are they trying to change their name to World Class Wrecking Crew? Or is that a different team? Uh, I don't know of a World Class Wrecking Crew. Did I, did I say something on air about that? No, but I last week I was listening to uh, Observer, uh, I think live, and they kept referring to them as the World Class Wrecking Crew, and they were kind of saying it in like a tongue-in-cheek way, like, like as though... It's not their real name, but maybe they're trying to change the name. I don't know. Uh, but, yeah, I was. I kind of thought that that might make sense if they're trying to elevate them and sort of uh, move them away from, uh, like, a regional-sounding name to something that's, you know, world-class, you know, something that's a little bit bigger. But mm. I don't know. I, I like West Coast Wrecking Crew as a name. But uh, what I didn't love was their attire on this evening. <laughs> yeah, what were they wearing? <laughs> they uh, somehow they were covered up with a lot more material than they normally wear. But for some reason, they looked a lot more naked to me than if they were just wearing trunks. <laughs> it's really weird. But it kind of reminded me of. Um, did you do you know the the boxer Hector Macho Camacho? Uh, name sounds familiar. He was a a pretty big Puerto Rican star in like the 80s and 90s. And he used to wear stuff like this. But like, you know, you kind of have to have, in my opinion, if you're going to wear like trunks with a bunch of fringe that plummets down into like a quasi dress, you got to have the riz. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, Like there are certain people I think can pull this off, but you have to be like, a charismatic dynamo. You got to be one of those like, you know, entertainer type guys. And I don't know if I see the West coast wrecking crew, someone that I like, anytime I think of a team that's called the wrecking crew, right. I'm thinking of like Ole and Arn. I'm thinking of like Brock and uh, Shelton Benjamin. Like I'm thinking about like a bruiser tag team. And in my opinion, these guys are kind of a quasi bruiser tag team. In fact, if you recall, when we first started covering them on Strong, I complained that they wore tassels on their boots and they didn't work like a team that had tassels on their boots. You know, they didn't work like a Steamboat and and a Young Blood or a Rock and Roll Express or what have you. And I was like, so why the fuck are you wearing tassels again? Why were they wearing plunging? I don't even know what you call it, but like basically, what what would you call what they were wearing? I don't know. It was kind of like um, you know, what Tatanka used to wear, kind of that, like kind of like like a war dress, yeah, like a war, yeah, (laughs) war Native American dress thing with fringe down the like. It it was just kind of weird, and I get like their part team filthy, and Tom Waller does that, you know, with, with the fringe sometimes on his boots and his jacket, but. I'll tell you this. I don't think this is going to get over or like work for them. I think that uh, I liked them in the trunks. Maybe add some, fr- if you want to add fringe, add all the fringe you want, but the, the plummeting line, whatever the fuck you're wearing, that, that didn't work for me. It looked like they're, they looked more naked somehow. It, <laughs> it looked inappropriate. I, I can't explain it. It looked wrong. Um, as far as the match goes, this was fun inoffensive i was a little surprised i mean granted the motor city machine guns are definitely the more um reputable and known quantity as far as like 
long-term success as a tag team. They've got the name and the reputation behind it. But at the same time, I always kind of felt like they were probably just a holdover tag team to get the belts off of uh, Aussie Open and transitioned to somebody else in a credible way. And West Coast Wrecking Crew has always been the stalwart tag team of the new Japan strong brand. Like they pretty much created the, the division to accommodate them as a tag team and they've never held the titles. And with them changing the format of new Japan strong and them being part of team filthy, it just sort of felt like this is probably the attaboy to all the hard work that they've done. And I was surprised that they ate another loss and failed in, in challenging for these titles once again. Um, maybe that means that uh, they have further plans down the road for Motor City Machine Guns. I mean, keep in mind they are the dual champions. They are the current Impact World uh, Tag Team Champions. And they've also, after this match, they said that they plan to acquire more gold in 2023 and add to their collection and they're looking to make their way back to the domestic product of new japan as well so who knows maybe that's where this is leading but i was a little surprised to see that they defeated west coast wrecking career because I, I just sort of expected them to uh transition the title yeah i was uh surprised too and not only surprised that they beat them but kind of just how they beat them um, like I said, they, they got uh, a little bit over nine minutes here, and uh, it, it was a short match, and, you know, there wasn't that kind of, you know, dramatic closing sequence. It was the guns kind of, you know, hitting their double team stuff. Uh, towards the end, they uh, were able to hit one of their big sequences, followed up by the, the Dirt Bomb, which is one of their, their new tag finishers that they've been using lately, and just kind of pinned these guys, and it was like, oh, that that that's it? Uh I was expecting a little bit more here for it being, you know, the strong tag team title match, like you mentioned, with West Coast, West Coast Wrecking Crew being uh, a team they've been building. I expected a little bit more back and forth, a little bit more drama uh, towards the end there, but it kind of just kind of ended out of nowhere with uh, guns taking over uh, with the dream sequence, hitting the dirt bomb, and, and getting the, the victory here. Yeah, I, I sort of... I sort of expected them to have a little bit more back and forth myself as well. Um, I mean, you could kind of tell that the finish was coming because they sort of eliminated Royce Isaacs from the equation and kind of, you know, got, uh, oh, God, what's what's wrong with me? Uh, uh, Nelson. Yeah, yeah, Jarrell Nelson. They got him um, isolated and set up for their finish, but uh, – you know, it, it did go a relatively short amount of time. I don't know if they necessarily needed a lot more time here, but uh, it, this, the the finish did kind of come unexpectedly. Yeah, so yeah, it's kind of ended out of nowhere. But yeah, Machine Guns, they, they win and retain. I'm sure they're probably going to defend maybe both belts um, at that uh, Multiverse WrestleMania weekend show that Impact is doing with New Japan. Uh, so then following that, we had the Loser Leaves NJPW match. The Mad King, Eddie Kingston, defeats Switchblade Jay White, 19 minutes and 7 seconds. Jay White is out of here, no longer part of New Japan Pro Wrestling. Uh, you know... Um 
before we get into the match itself, I just want to say that we hadn't talked to anybody in the company. We didn't have any inside information. We didn't necessarily even know if the stars were aligned for Jay to potentially even leave this company because there's been so much back and forth speculation about the true nature of his uh, contractual status with the company and what the real lengths and parameters of that even were. But we were saying back in November that it really felt like this guy was on his way out of the company. And I guess it, was proven to be true. And there were a lot of reasons for us to kind of double guess that and question ourselves. But you and I constantly week after week, we just kind of kept coming back to it and being like, it feels like he's done. (laughs) Yeah. And we were right. (laughs) Yeah. Like you said, we didn't have any official report or sources telling us that, but just based on the booking, based on the fact that he wasn't showing up to Japan as the world heavyweight champion, there was little build for the Okada match. That he had a very cold build to that uh, Tokyo Dome main event for Wrestle Kingdom 17. Yeah, all, all the signs point to this. This guy's done, and he he's leaving the territory. Uh, and like you said, yeah, we were right, and that's exactly uh, what happened here. Yeah. Um, now I will say this: a um, couple things that I loved leading up to this. Uh, I loved their interaction with one another on new Japan strong that last promo segment that the two of them had with one another that sort of solidified this match. I thought that was fantastic. I thought that the uh, press conference the day prior was um, I didn't love the press conference, but I did love Eddie Kingston's entire, you know, bit he just showed up and he's like, Oh, this guy's not going to show up. He's not here, blah, blah, blah. Which that was another like kind of indicator. It's like the moment that happened, I was like, Oh, he's really done. Like, cause he didn't even bother to <laughs> that. That tells you something. He didn't even show up for the press conference and who knows, maybe he had something going on, but that that's very telling that he didn't even, uh, you know, make an appearance, but Eddie was fantastic during the uh the press conference leading up to this now i didn't i did not some things i did not like about the press conference bad lighting bad video quality bad sound the same it's not quite as egregious as the the show's snafus um and granted it is just a press conference very few people tune into those but again this is a big company if you're going to have a press conference you need to have better production you just need to have good lighting you need to have good sound like it just needs to look like a real production and i think that they do a good job of that in japan and this one here in the u.s looked rinky-dink and and maybe not the best but uh eddie came out there and he was like you know this guy wants me to beg him i don't even ask god for forgiveness you think i'm gonna beg him i was like oh my god and then he, he started talking about how uh, you know, he's like, there's a lot of guys that think they're better wrestlers than me, and maybe they are, and you know, but they don't understand the history of the business the way I do. He's like, I have something that they don't have. I know the history. He's like, this guy might be wrestling in Japan, but he doesn't know about wrestling in Japan the way that I do. He's like, he doesn't know that Ricky Dozon, you know, uh, 
passed this down to Bob and Anoki, and then Anoki passed it down to Fujinami and Ricky Choshu, and they passed it down to the Musketeers, and then they passed it down to Nagata and Tenzan and Kojima, and then they passed it down to the ace of the universe, Tanahashi, and and uh, Nakamura, and you know, then they passed it down to Okada. He's like, he doesn't know about that. He doesn't understand it. He doesn't res- respect the legacy, blah, blah. And he's like, that's why I'm going to get this guy out of here. <laughs> <laughs> that, and, uh, that sounded the most, like, gatekeeper, like. <laughs> <laughs> that's really what it is. It, it, it's, it's someone that, like, you know, this f- fucking Jay White, like, is um, everything that a Death Valley driver video reviewer probably hates about you know current day like new japan pro wrestling and eddie kingston was on those boards probably still is on those boards <laughs> you know he, he he talked about how um he's like i he he mentioned how wrestling saved his life because he was on the streets and the day that uh the first tokyo dome show for noah made VHS, he went and bought it and watched it at home and he told the story to Junakiyama after he wrestled him that instead of going out and committing crimes, he went home and watched a VHS of Noah's Great Voyage and the two guys he was supposed to go with got shot and killed and he was like, I was supposed to be there. Wrestling saved my life. And I'm like, I don't even know if that story's true. It sounds very real and if it's not, it's an incredible work. But I sure as hell am not going to ask Eddie Kingston whether that is real or not because he's scary, bro. <laughs> yeah, we, we've had some uh, close uh, encounters of Eddie Kingston uh, in the Orpheum here in uh, Ebor for FIP Involved shows. Uh, yeah, pretty intimidating dude uh, up close and personal. So, yeah, we'll definitely not be asking him if that was a work or a shoot. <laughs> yeah, but um, he he did great on that and, you know, basically just promised that he's going to get rid of Jay White. What I didn't love... I didn't love that they set up the go home stipulation for this on Wrestling Observer Live. Now, I listen to Wrestling Observer Live, and I'm sure some of the people that listen to this show are familiar with it or, or listen to it, but I can't imagine that there's that much crossover between and synergy between the Wrestling Observer Live listening audience on a Thursday afternoon and those that are going to tune in and, and pay for this pay-per-view now, granted, they did do a lot of promotion of the angle on social media after the fact, but I just don't, I don't know. I feel like that, that this is something, again, that to me, just my opinion, came off super low rent. You know, I, I'm not saying we're in the same, we're not in the same stratosphere necessarily as a Wrestling Observer Live, but can you imagine like if we were setting up a wrestling angle on our podcast? Like, I just think that that's kind of corny. And I now the execution of it, I thought was very good. I thought, I thought the execution was great, but like, why are you doing it at the 11th hour on wrestling observer live for someone that had this quote unquote, very historic career. And you're trying to sell pay-per-views. Like to me, this just wasn't a good way to get eyes on the product Mm -hmm. or to really expand your reach in any way. It was super, it's too niche. Yeah. I think Probably their thoughts was like, all right, we we want to get some you know additional pay per view buys. Let's tap into that observer you know fan base and get you know do this angle and try and get some more buys that way. I, like I, I will kind of agree with you. It does kind of seem kind of weird to do a wrestling angle on there, especially because most of the time the stuff on Observer Live is 
more kind of um, more of a shoot. Like guy, right. guys, when they normally when they do interviews, guys are not really going on there and you know, working the angle. Like Rocky Romero was on there, and he wasn't being a heel. He was just you know promoting the pay per view, promoting the show. Like he. Most time, guys go on there. They're not really in character. You know, they're just kind of doing an interview to promote whatever they have to promote. And so it is kind of weird that oh, all of a sudden now you get you're doing an angle uh, on the show with these two guys. Which, like I said, execution was great, but just kind of differentiates from what they typically do on there. Yeah. The other thing too that I'm not necessarily a big fan of is um, I like the idea of Eddie versus Jay. I liked this match a lot. Everything top to bottom was very good. But for this to kind of be the exodus match for Jay White to his send-off, I mean, technically, if we're being real, we the real send-off was the match with Hikaleo in Osaka and everything like that. That's very fitting. And I, I don't know what the real backstage ongoings were like. Did they when they set this matchup? Did they know it was going to be Jay's last match? Was it intended for this to be a retirement? Was this on the books before you know his exodus from the company was on the table, and therefore they had to move forward with the match because they already sold tickets and advertised it? I think some of those things are plausible explanations. Yeah, I mean he was on the the advertising graphics in like November for this show, right? But I just don't know how I personally – I don't know if that's a great narrative from a storyline perspective that his final match was with Eddie Kingston, a guy who is fantastic but works for AEW, has never been to New Japan domestically speaking. Um, they they do have a brief history with one another on New Japan Strong, but outside of that, there's not a lot of history there. And I, I just don't know if I feel like this was uh, – the way that I would have liked to have sent Jay White off to the Fed. You know, I don't know. That being said, the match itself, very, 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 very good. I think I'm probably in the minority here. I personally, I liked the Hikaleo match better than this match. Really? Well, yeah, Jeremy, I was on the show last week and I, or whatever it was, and I told you that I was four to four and a quarter on it. Everyone else seems to be a lot lower on it than me. I liked that. I liked that match a lot better than this match, but I thought this match was very good too. Nice. Yeah. For me, I'm, I definitely like this match better than, than the Hikaleo match. I'm like four and a quarter on this match up here. Um, that was laid out very well, very kind of a emotional matchup and, like you mentioned, all of Eddie Kingston's, you know, J- Japanese knowledge comes into the play in his matchups, and he's using a lot of the moves of, of the pillars and, and legends of Puro, and lots of great uh, strike exchanges uh, with him and Jay White exchanging the uh, the Kojima chops um, in the corner. A lot of they, they chopped the shit out of each other, both of these guys. Yeah, uh, a lot of great suplexes. Um, Jay was dropping Eddie on his head with those sleeper suplexes, and uh, Eddie returned the favor with some suplexes of his own. So really just kind of great um, back and forth stuff there. And then uh, the closing uh, stretch of the match was just uh, really, really great um, where you had, um, you know, Kingston, he he offers uh, Jay White a fist bump and then White spits on him. Then um, Kingston hits a, a second uh, back fist. And then a third back fist, and then he hits the half and half suplex, a fourth back flip, uh, back fist, 
and Rowan's lights driver, and then Jay White kicks out a two of that, which was a great near fall there. And then Kingston uh, picks up Jay, uh, gives him a hug, and hits him with another Northern Lights driver to uh, get the win and put an end to Jay White's career in New Japan. Yeah, um, all that was really great. I, I will say this, though. I guess if I'm just being a little critical, I didn't like Eddie Kingston's version of the Northern Lights bomb the same way that like uh, right now, I think like Naito does that move better than probably anybody else that's out there for the most part. Yeah. Uh, and this one, I mean, this one, these ones fell a lot more like a, a suplex, you know what I mean? The way he was landing him, but it was still very safe. It maybe just didn't look as impactful or as impressive as I am used to seeing it from Naito, but the closing sequence was really great. These guys went to war really great match. Uh, there was that moment where Jay White did hit him with the uh, Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. Is that what it's called? Yeah, Blade Runner. But uh, Eddie, you know, kind of almost a little bit comically, like, used the full momentum of landing to just roll <laughs> all the right. way out. Crowd pop for that. <laughs> crowd pop for it. I thought I thought the way he did it was a little bit, like, too on the nose. Like, it, it didn't, like, cause he was so far. He had to roll so many times to, <laughs> to land out. Yeah. But the funny thing with it is, like, it is fitting in a way because we've seen Jay White use those same sort of tactics in his his matches where someone hits him with a big move and he dead bodies his weight or, you know, rolls out of the ring and avoids whatever's coming to him. So it, it was kind of poetic in a way that he got a little bit of a, a taste of his own medicine against, uh, Eddie Kingston. I did think it was funny prior to the match that Jay White said that he was giving Eddie Kingston one of his dreams, allowing him to grace the ring with a <laughs> Japanese wrestling legend, <laughs> <laughs> which was really funny. But uh, I, I, I was a little surprised and shocked at the ending. I think there was a lot of emotion here, but at the same time, I was pretty convinced that we were seeing the the last of Jay White. Anyways, I don't, I don't think that. I think a lot of other people probably were skeptical on it still, but um, I wasn't really that surprised at the outcome here. Yeah. Um, and then uh, post-match, uh, you know, Jay White's getting several uh, thank you, Jay Chance. He grabs a mic. We think we're going to get, you know, a some kind of goodbye or send-off promo from Jay White. And then out comes David Finley, his uh, longtime rival, uh, these guys. In, in real life, really good friends that came up through the Noge Dojo together. Uh, Finley runs out. He uh, has a shillelagh in hand, and he cracks Jay White with the shillelagh, uh, knocks Jay White out cold, gets the mic, and he's dropping F-bombs, and he's cursing out Jay White and cursing him for wasting the opportunity that he had. And he, you know, he's been in the back all his time, wishing and wanting what Jay White had, and now he's going to take what Jay White has, and he uh, warned the rest of the New Japan locker room, um, and he that you know that he, no matter where he goes, you know he felt like an outsider. Like in America, he's Irish, and in Japan, he's a gaijin, and in Ireland, he's American. He just doesn't feel at home anywhere, and he's you know come and take everything that Jay had, and uh, kind of be a force to reckon with uh, in New Japan pro wrestling, and. This this got a ton of heat. The crowds uh, were you know telling him to, to shut up and uh, Finley. They were telling him to shut the fuck up. And, is what they were saying. Yeah, and Finley <laughs> and Finley was giving it back to them. And uh, yeah, I like when he, I liked 
so many times you see different wrestlers respond to negative reactions in kind of like creative, like MJF's probably one of the best wrestlers at this when they're giving him something, he'll have a, a, a snarky or a comedic comeback. But I liked the way that Finley did it. He was like, Oh, you're telling me to shut the fuck up. No, you shut the fuck up. Yeah, dude. <laughs> and, they, and they did. <laughs> he was going off. And I guess, you know, with the fight TV feed, maybe you know, they're, they're allowed that, um, you know, no censorship or whatever, but yeah, he was going off, and I thought he did an excellent job with this promo. This, this is the kind of stuff that we've been saying that we kind of needed from Finley. This kind of you know breakout moment, uh, you know, grab him by the throat kind of you know situation for him. And I think that's exactly what he did here. I thought the promo was great. It makes a ton of sense considering the history between uh, Dave Finley and Jay White. You know, we were in attendance for Resurgence August twenty twenty one. Where these guys wrestled and Jay was a heel, Finley was the face, and Finley got booed out the building on um, that evening. And Jay was the the hero, baby face, uh, crowd reaction wise. And just to see where this whole story ends up, and it, it being Finley to get the you know the last laugh, so to speak, on Jay White. Yeah, I I also really enjoyed the promo. My, I did think there was a little bit at the so all throughout. The promo, I thought it was great. I'm like, yeah, hell yeah, Finley. This is a guy that, like, you know, recently had this huge resurgence during the G1, but after the G1 has kind of been MIA a little bit. So we've sort of been wondering when are they going to get him back in the rotation and capitalize on the momentum that he built up coming out of that G1. Well, here it was. I love that. I like that he came out showed this, you know, angry, uh, you know, energy and attacked Jay and called him out, taught, you know, basically buried him for squandering his opportunity and yada, yada, yada. It's all great stuff and, and mm-hmm. some of the other talking points you had. But then at the end of it, it felt, it went to like a flat place. And we've seen, I've actually seen uh, at least two to three times in his career, especially on these U.S. shows where, uh, they've tabbed Finley to be the guy to come out and do something like this. He's done this come out post match and challenge people. We even saw him do this uh, years and years ago to Jay White after the Hangman Adam Page match. So it, it mm. kind of it's a little bit reminiscent of that. And almost every time there's like this flatness at the very end of it. Um, not I'm not saying that it's totally like it was a total failure. It wasn't a failure. I think there was more good than bad here. But I felt like the the last note of his promo, I was feeling a little bit like, all right, well, where was this? Where is this going? What is this about? And maybe some of that's by design because we're going into new Japan cup. They probably want us to have some of those questions, especially Mm -hmm. with this whole void because there's no bullet club leader now. And he came out in all black. So that was probably by design, but I would have liked to have, at least some sort of inclination as to what is this leading to? Even if, even if it's just a, a, a little tease, you know, I'm not saying like connect the dots and, and, you know, lay it out. But to me, it was just, a, he just came out hit with the shillelagh talked a bunch of shit. And then it was like, well, what's next? I don't know. I just felt, it felt a little at the end, like, eh, like it kind of fell. And I would have liked it to be a little bit more impactful and definitive at the end. Yeah, I know. He did mention, you know, taking what Jay White had. So that's kind of, to me, was pointing like, you know, he's going to take over Bullet Club potentially. And, 
He's in the New Japan Cup facing up against uh, Ishii in the first round. So to me, it's kind of setting the groundwork for him to have a run in the New Japan Cup, potentially win the uh, New Japan Cup. Yeah, I agree. I don't think he's going to be the Bull Club leader personally. But of course, I could be wrong. Been wrong before. But I, I, I always thought he was going to beat Ishii in the first round anyways. And I think that this sets the table for that to an even greater extent moving forward. One thing I would point out, though, is very rarely, if ever, do you see anybody from the Bullet Club act on their own in any real capacity. They mm-hmm. almost always have the backing or the uh, you know coordination of, of an attack with other Bullet Club members. I mean, that's just part of their MO. I can't think of a single incident where someone was tied to the, the Bullet Club and just went out and acted on their own in this sort of way. You know what I mean? Yeah, I guess maybe kind of evil when he turned on Naito. I mean, there wasn't really any signs that he was. Yeah, but they all came out afterwards. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Every time, every time someone from Bullet Club does anything like, and I know we're getting into the lore, <laughs> but the lore of the Bullet Club is if you're part, if you are BC and you act, then they'll come out and support you on some level. And nobody came out and indicated in any way that they're tied to this guy. Now maybe that. That might be the case in the future, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I don't know if I personally even buy Finley as being the Bull Club leader. I, I I do buy him potentially being like a faction leader or something like that, mm-hmm. or a potential upper mid card main event type guy. But uh, I don't know. I, I I didn't read when I saw this. Nothing about this told me personally that he was taking over Bull Club. That's not the way I saw it at all. Yeah, I think it's a, it's kind of a tease. It's kind of leaving it open-ended. I guess we'll see what happens uh, come New Japan Cup. We have a ton of questions here on this matchup. So first from uh, OKOK890, how does Finley compare to pre-Bullet Club leader Jay, Kenny, and Devitt? Do you even think Finley, this means that Finley is the new Bullet Club leader? Uh, I don't want to really do the whole comparison bit, but, you know, because I... I all four of all three of the well, all four of the previous leaders have been very different in a lot of different various ways. So I mean, I don't know. Yeah, like, like you said, we don't 100 percent even know if he is going to be the leader or not. So, and to me, I don't think that this means that he is the next bull club leader. I think other people might have seen it that way potentially, and maybe maybe it does lead to that, but I don't see it that way. Yeah. Uh, he also said, "What it what it made more sense for Finley to be Jay's last match?" Yes, it would have made a lot more sense if that had been the case. But then again, like I mentioned, I don't know if when they made this match and and were planning it, if they ever intended for it to actually be his last match to begin with. And my gut tells me that that probably isn't the case. I don't think they did think that this was going to be his final send off. Right, and they were supposed to have Jay versus Eddie on strong, but Eddie had COVID and couldn't make the match. So Correct. If, if that match had already happened, maybe this would have been uh, Finley versus Jay or some other matchup for Jay. The other thing, too, is that even if in the kayfabe of New Japan, Finley versus Jay is a more fitting match, at this current... I'm not saying this could this might change. Don't Don't get it twisted, but we've already done... Jay versus Finley in the States, and it was a pretty monumental flop, yeah. you know? And I don't, even though 
a lot has shifted with Finley in recent times coming off the G1. I don't know if enough has shifted to where he would have gotten the type of reactions in a match with Jay that people would have wanted. You know what I mean? I think it actually could have been potentially damaging to uh, Finley. And the reason I say this too is because the last time these two guys wrestled, they were they were coming off of two back-to-back incredible performances from Finley in the New Japan Cup against both Jay White and Will Ospreay. And we were like, oh, this guy's reinvigorated and rejuvenated. And then he went to America and got crickets and booed out of the building. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if what he did in the, the G1 is enough to endear him to the U.S. audience at this point anyway. So this this probably long-term was better for Finley than it would have been if he had been the the final opponent for Jay. Yeah. Uh, last commission, 7252. Did Jay White feel easy to beat in the last few minutes of the match of Eddie Kingston? After the Blade Runner to Kingston, he didn't feel like no final boss compared to his other matches in Japan. That's probably true. I, I don't know if I have much more to add to that, but that's probably a, a correct observation. Uh, I mean, I thought he, he also he wasn't super dominant towards the end, but you know he ate a ton of offense from Eddie and hit that that big flurry and kicked out of that uh, Northern Lights driver. Um, so I think he was still fighting a lot towards the end there. Yeah, I mean, I just think at the tail end you have two guys that are not necessarily upper echelon of New Japan's hierarchy beating him on the way out, which is. I mean, that's classical booking. When someone's on their way out of the territory, you, you make them lose on the way down, on their way out. But, uh, yeah, you're probably right. He, the, he didn't feel like the same Jay White. In in his last three big matches with Okada and then, you know, these two guys, he didn't feel like the same guy he'd been over the past few years. And maybe that's just part of the booking, the story they were telling. It also might have something to do with uh, – him actually being on the way out and mentally disengaging from the product in general. Yeah. Uh, Dark Soldier says, Abushi is gone. White is gone. Who do you feel can fill that hole? Um, well, I mean, I feel like they've already been filling the hole to a certain extent. I mean, their exodus from the company kind of coincides with the rise of different stars like uh, like Will Ospreay and Shingo Takagi. And uh, I mean, I'm sure there are other, I mean, right now, if we're just taking a look at the main event scene, like who, who are the big, who's probably like the big four to big, big six. You got Osprey, Okada, Naito, Naito, Shingo. That's four. Who else is like at the top of the card right now? Uh, I think that's pretty much it. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe there is something to that. Maybe there is, like, a another two spots that could be filled. At, is there anyone at the top of the card that I'm missing that I'm not thinking of? Uh, unless you want to count Tanahashi, but he's kind of... Tanahashi feels like he's... <laughs> we'll get to that. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think there's definitely room to elevate people. You don't have that traditional, you know, top six guys with uh, White and Ibushi being gone, but that leaves the door open for a day of Finley to get pushed for a El Phantasmo to 
uh, get pushed up the card. It, it opens the door for some of the, maybe the LA Dojo guys to get spots in Japan. Uh, like we mentioned in all time, New Japan has an excellent pipeline of talent between what's going on in America with the Dojo and the Academy, the Noge Dojo, the, the Fale Dojo, and you know the, the relationship over with Rev Pro. They have so many avenues to bring talent in, and they're they're going to easily uh, fill those slots for the main event. Yeah, I mean, uh, Ocon, Zack Sabre Jr., just to name a few others that are kind of like in that upper, you know, just kind of, you know, knocking on the door type of situation. Plus, Shota Umino's just returned from excursion. And Narita. Narita. They, they, they've got young talent on its way. So, I mean, um, I don't know if I'd, I would pick the two specific guys that I think could fill their shoes because those are big shoes to fill. But there, it's not due to a lack of resources. There's a lot of talent um, on on their way up in New Japan from their you know dojo systems. Yeah, uh, Scott Ran asks with the announcement of the loser leaves New Japan stipulation just days before the show and the post match attack by Dave Finley. Does it feel like the plans were changed and maybe the final match was to be against Finley on the next? pay-per-view i don't know i think we're getting into fantasy booking territory and i i don't know if his contract was going to be up on the you know before or after i don't know that that's too that's too speculative for me to touch upon really yeah it's hard i mean it came off angle came off very well so i mean it could have been the plan um at a certain point but yeah without knowing the full details it's kind of hard to kind of figure out what was and what is and what was all planned building up the battle in the valley. Uh, next question from Downing24. Where does Bull Club go from here? Continue with a new leader or slowly start to end the faction? I guess I'm fine with either. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think they're too long in the tooth personally, and I don't find them to be creatively interesting at this point. Um, although with a new leader, they could become relevant once again, but I don't think they have the cast of characters currently, even with a really compelling front man. I don't think that they're that interesting. I mean, the only person in the group that I find to be really compelling and with a lot of upside is El Fantasmo. Yeah. Almost everybody else in the company just feels like Jags. Yeah, Chase Owens, Fale, um, How's the Torture. Yeah. It's slim pickings for Bullet Club nowadays. Yeah, this is not the pseudo-cool, you know, interesting, you know, kind of trendy throwback group, you know, hearkening back to the days of NWO and NWO Japan and DX. Like, this is not that anymore. And, um... You know, I don't want to be, I don't want to be that guy. But like, this group was designed to be a gaijin foreign heel group, and it's mostly domestic talent. And there's nothing wrong with that, but they've never really tapped into what made Bullet Club cool in the first place, which was the fact that they were fucking cool. Like, that's why people bought the shirts is because they were cool. Mm-hmm. They haven't been cool in like. When did uh when did the first Jericho cruise happen? <laughs> uh, Since, 28, 
fall of 2018, right? Yeah. It's been five years since this group was cool. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Like they're, they're just not, they're lame and that's the problem. Like they're lame. And, um, I mean, they, they, there are some talented people there. Kent is there, you know, I guess juice is part of the group. Phantasmo. Phantasmo show, but like, none of these guys feel like buddies that actually like travel together or have any real connection. They're not out there doing like any of the cool shit that they did when they were, they don't have the bucks, you know, they don't have the elite. They don't have that heart and life and soul. And, you know, they don't feel different from any of the other generic. They feel like just a generic heel group with a black and white t-shirt. Yeah. That's my, that's my biggest problem with them. Like it's, this shit's not the same as it was, uh, you know, back in the day. Now, individually there's definitely like people like different individuals and and stuff from the team but as a as a group as a whole they just look like a bunch of jags yeah uh last question here on this matchup from barry walsh do you think covid has tarnished jay white's legacy in new japan years from now people will talk about the clap crowds from the era and covid also stopped jay Getting in Japan for long periods, he leaves as a Grand Slam champion and a positive win-loss record against Okada. But do you think he'll be remembered for all his accomplishments, or will they be remembered with less herald due to the effects of the last few years? Um, Hard to say. It's also going to depend on what happens after this. Where is he going next? I think he's going to WWE. There's a lot of people who don't think he's going to WWE. I think those folks are wrong. (laughs) I think there's a lot of wishful thinking. um, But I think that if he goes to WWE and he has a fantastic run and really adds to his legacy in a, in a major way and keep in mind, he's still young. He has a lot of the things that that company is looking for. Great physique, long black hair, long beard (laughs) <laughs> they push a lot of dudes in that company with black hair and black beards for whatever and, reason. Dude, he, he's a great heel. Triple H is going to love that, dude. He, Triple H can run that, you know, 02 to 05, Triple H booking with him. He can slow it down. Yeah. He can draw heat. He's technically excellent. He's an incredible talker. Yeah, great promo. Great promo. There's a lot there that they're going to like about the overall presentation. If there ever was a guy that was tailor-made for from New Japan in the past few years that was tailor-made for WWE, it's the Switchblade Jay White. So I don't know if he goes over there and, you know, wins the world title, does, you know, big main events, does SummerSlam, wins the Royal Rumble, if that's going to quote-unquote tarnish his legacy. He's still got a lot of legacy in front of him. He's not He's not knocking Nakamura going over there in 2015 while, you know, after he's been beaten down and his, you know, better years are behind him. That's not really the case here. Um, as far as his legacy in, in AEW or in New Japan goes, I think that – I don't think that the uh, – I don't think the pandemic tarnished his legacy – I think it's more just like his involvement with the company severely slowed down due to the pandemic. So there was less opportunity to see what could have been, but right. it's like the it, whole, you know, what if, like if there, if there was yeah. no COVID, like where would he have been? Like what, what more would he have accomplished if there was no COVID? Yeah. But I think the one, the two things that he never did 
that we've always talked about on this show that we're still kind of on the table for him. He never won the G1 or any major tournament, if you think about it. He never won a New Japan Cup, right? No. Yeah, so he never was like a, a, a tournament guy in the company's like mythos. And even though he held the title twice, he never really was the top guy. Right. At any like he never he was a top guy, a top star, and a champion, but he never had a top guy run in the company at all. Um Osprey has had a top guy run, even if it was, you know, with the asterisk during the pandemic, he was headlining and you know, running at the top of the show over Okada briefly. Kenny Omega had a top guy run. They never really gave a top guy run in that sense to Jay White. Yeah. It's kind of uh it's one of those situations where you know he's he's under Okada. Okada's the top guy and you get, you're gonna draw more of Okada in the main events. Uh yeah. But yeah, I don't think yeah it's gonna ruin his legacy. And overall, I think you know he's gonna have a good run in WWE. I mean, there is a track record there for uh, former Bullet Club leaders. You, you look at uh, you know Finn Balor, aka Prince Devitt. You look at AJ Styles. Those guys were pushed well, very heavily. Still kind of being used um, well today. And so I, I think Jay is gonna have a good run. And even if he does have a bad run, I don't think it's going to hurt what he did in New Japan. I I agree. Then uh, moving on, we had the filthy rules fight. So this was a uh, no ropes, no disqualification matchup here. Filthy Tom Lawler ends up defeating Homicide, sixteen minutes and twenty two seconds. I liked this match a lot. I think for some folks, this was a little surprising because they thought because it was a filthy rules fight and there were no ropes that they were going to get. And I think I also expected a quasi uh, shoot style wrestling match, something closer in proximity to blood sport. But this was anything but that. This was basically a no ropes street fight with, you know, weapons uh, all laid out around the ring. Uh, Nevertheless, I think with a guy like homicide on a card like this, it made a lot of sense to me. I really enjoyed the work. I think the crowd was, uh, even if they weren't necessarily super hot for either Homicide or Tom Lawler, the spectacle of seeing guys get put through boards and you know using ladders and chairs and cookie sheets and all that stuff, I think that that worked and it was a good way to sort of break up the emotional aspect of the previous match and get you know the table set for the the two main events mm-hmm. um so for me i thought this match worked and you know there's no there's no denying that homicide at this point has seen better years when it comes to mobility and his ability to work in the ring and kind of disguising that by putting him in a familiar setting like a death match which he's more than adept at doing uh it worked really well and i thought these guys had a lot of good chemistry good storytelling, the stuff with the forks. I think it all worked. Yeah, you know, we have mentioned a lot last few weeks about, you know, bookers should hide people's weaknesses and emphasize their strengths. And I think that's what they did here with Homicide. You know, this is not 2005. We're not, we're not getting a Ring of Honor Homicide. We're not getting, you know, TNA Homicide here. It's, it's 2023. And so, yeah, putting Homicide in 
I know DQ's street street fight environment definitely kind of plays into his brawling background, his violent background uh, that we've seen over the years. So I thought that was a great way to kind of uh, utilize homicide. And plus, you know, in the U.S., uh, Western fans love plunder. They love weapons uh, spots being used in the match. And so, yeah, I really enjoy this match. I've seen a lot of kind of negative um, reviews and feedback on this matchup from a certain reviewers and uh, pundits. But I really enjoyed the matchup. I thought they did a lot of wild and crazy stuff. I mean, Homicide straight up throwing a chair right in Tom's face. Um, yeah, that could have gone wrong. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you had uh, Tom doing the uh, the big um, headbutt off the ladder to Homicide. A uh, spot where Homicide uh, T-boned uh, Lawler through a, a door. Uh, I think it was on the outside. Um Lawler had um, homicide and submission, and he got the fork and was jabbing uh, Tom's foot with the fork. So there was a lot of really cool and awesome, dangerous uh, spots of all kind of weapons uh, in this matchup. Yeah, uh, and again, I did see some people that were a little low on it. I think they, I think the the one misstep here is potentially uh, presenting this as though people were expecting that they were going to get like a blood, blood sport style match and people having that expectation going into it might've disappointed some folks. You know what I mean? Yeah. They probably should have leaned into the idea that this was going to be a plunder fest and then there wouldn't have been as much blowback. Yeah. I'm not quite sure why they decided to go no ropes. They should have just done a straight up no DQ with the ropes on. Um, but it is what it well, is. I mean, and back in the day, I mean, there were a lot of like no rope plunder matches. This isn't like any necessarily a new thing, but I think because of Filthy Tom Lawler's MMA style background and you know the proliferation of, of blood sport, I think people were sort of expecting that. Yeah, uh, but yeah, overall thought it was a good match. Uh, Filthy Tom he hits the uh, NKOTB followed by a rare naked choke. To get the win here And also I did th- thought they did a great job um, Educating the fans With the video package before the match That, that highlighted this whole How this whole rivalry started And all the multiple matches that we've seen On uh, Strong uh, for the last several months Agreed So that brings us to the NJPW World Television title match The front man of TMDK, Zack Sabre Jr. He defeats the Wild Rhino, Clark Connors, 14 minutes and 6 seconds. Um, So I liked the match in general. I love the idea that they, uh, you know, were giving a shot for the title to Clark Connors. Uh, They advertised that this would be a title centered around opportunity and young talent. And, you know, this was a good step in that direction. Um. I don't know if they set the table to the level that they probably needed to, to kind of build this match up. You know, recently like uh, Zach sort of just threw the challenge out there after his last defense against Ishii that he would defend the title against the LA Dojo guy. And then Clark made a video, but I don't think they did a great job with the pre-packaged promo necessarily or, or hyping the match, but the match itself was very good. One thing I didn't like they're flirting with that 15 minute time limit once again. And, you know, with this type of gimmick, I guess you can do that, but I feel like if you continually edge to the, the time limit every single time, 
then you're going to build in these expectations for, for folks that's like, all right, well, it's a Zach match. We're going to go 14 plus and get really close to a 15 minute match. And I mean, I guess you can't complain too much if the action is really good. And I did think the action was really good here, but you also don't want people to have these preconceived, you know, expectations about what they're going to see. I think that with it being a high speed centric style title and having these rules, it would be okay. And I'm not saying that he needed to squash Clark Connors necessarily, but like an, like a really, really kick-ass, high-octane, nine-minute match might have done the trick here. You know what I mean? Yeah. The only one thing I'll say to kind of go against what you're saying, I do kind of like the idea of setting up a precedent of, all right, with Zach as a champion, his matches are going to go close to the time limit. Because I think once you get down the road, maybe, you know, five or six defenses in, you do a flash match where he either wins or somebody beats him in a very short amount of time, and you you kind of it's surprised because you're like, oh, it's a Zach match. I know it's going to go 15, but then he gets beaten like a minute, rolled up real quick towards the beginning of the match, and it's something completely unexpected. Yeah, I think there's definitely that narrative opportunity, and if they go that way, you know, that would be great. And um, I, I can't deny that there's definitely an opportunity to do that. But in my opinion, because they didn't just do this during the title defenses, they did this through almost every single match he had in the tournament. Mm -hmm. I don't know that they're setting it up for that as much as just like, all right, it's a Zach match. We're going to go, we're going to go a good amount of time. And that's just it. Like we're going to tease the time limit. I'm not sure that they're setting it up for the big surprise down the road. (laughs) Yeah. If they do, that would be fantastic. And that would be a really great way to kind of shift the narrative and set up a big rematch and, and, you know, subvert expectations. But my fear is we're just going to keep having, you know, 14 plus minute matches every single time. (laughs) Yeah. I also wonder if this should be like, um, as a division, if they shouldn't be having TV title qualifying matches where people face off at non-title matches with the 15-minute time limit. Yeah, I think it would definitely help um, build challengers and build intrigue versus just kind of doing the the open challenge gimmick and having just random people challenge. Uh, I think that would be cool, especially to kind of get people used to the format that this is something new that they're doing. Um, I did wonder with Clark... Um, came out and I was really confused about his gear as well. <laughs> and I, I don't want to nitpick, but you know what I mean? Like he came out and he had like this tasseled up, you know, uh, I thought it was Bandito for a second. <laughs> yeah. I thought it was Bandito. He came out with a tasseled up, um, cowboy hat and all this weird stuff. And a lot of the, his gear has shifted a lot every time we see him. And which is good. He's working on his character and he's working on his presentation. But the reason I mention this is because I think that we are getting to a point where we need to start having a conversation about the presentation and utilization of the new Japan LA Dojo talent. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've got 
um, at this point, what, five graduates that are all now, quote unquote, fully graduated. And they're all still in this weird nebulous U.S. space kind of just existing. And one of them, uh, Carl Fredericks, is now working NXT level up and just completely gone. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm sorry, there were six. So now we've got DKC and Kevin Knight. Kevin Knight. And then you've got Gabe Kidd and Clark Connors and Alex Coughlin. None of them are working regular Japanese tours. None of them are really fixtures in the overall hierarchy of the company. They're kind of just U.S. guys that get thrown in from here and here and there. And, you know, they work indie dates and they'll work with their partners like, you know, uh, Rev Pro and stuff. But these guys have been with this company for five years now, almost in some cases, it's, it's a really, they've been with the company a very long time. And I'm wondering when are we going to start pulling the trigger from them? When are we going to get them involved with these tours? When are we going to give them real characters? When are we going to align them with real groups and make them part of the company? You you invested all this time and energy into them. And sure, you, you give them a, you give a, a Clark Goners a, a title shot against ZSJ on a big show like this. That's a great spot. And he did fantastic. The match was very entertaining. But what's next? I, I have no, other than the fact that we've been with these guys since the beginning and we're like the deep Shinihan freaks, most people that watch New Japan have very limited knowledge of them and have seen very few matches of theirs and really aren't that invested in them. And I'm, I'm wondering if the LA dojo was a flop at this point. Like if all of them are graduated, are we going to see a new class of guys coming in? Why would they even do that at this point when they haven't even integrated the first five guys that they, or the first six guys, they didn't even integrate them yet. So what's the point? Yeah, I know they're doing the whole new um, academy system to, you know, get talent for it for the dojo and do that whole thing. But, yeah, this is, um, you know, we've been talking about it for a while now. These guys should definitely be utilized more, integrated more into the New Japan system. It just doesn't make sense. And, you know, uh, earlier the question about, you know, COVID potentially tarnishing Jay White, but look what COVID did to these guys. I mean, pre-COVID, Carl Fredericks was slated to be in the New Japan Cup in Japan in a big first round matchup. It seemed like, you know, before the pandemic, like Fredericks, he was like the ace of this uh, dojo class and he was going to be pushed to the moon. There were so many people talking about, yes, guys, uh, future uh, IWGP champion. He's tall, the look, and like you mentioned, now he's in, you know, NXT and WWE developmental. And unfortunately, like, this could be the future for a lot of these guys if New Japan doesn't put their foot on the gas. Like, these are all very talented guys that could easily get into that NXT system and, and be out of here. Or or to AEW. Um, there, there are several places where these guys could go and be utilized. And it could detriment, yeah, the future of the Academy and the LA Dojo. If you're an upcoming wrestler and you're like, yeah, I love New Japan, but look at what they did to Fredericks. Look, look, look Coglin on the pre-show. His match had no audio. Uh, right. Con- Connors, you know, he's in this goofy tag team with Taguchi, and now he, you know, he every once in a while gets a match, but he's not over. 
Um, well, I mean, even even when he came out, okay, he came out, he had a great match, but I'm looking at him and I'm like, what are you wearing? He, that he didn't look cool. He didn't look like a guy. Now, I, I don't mean this in a disparaging way because I'm high on him as a talent, but I'm like, you're the wild rhino. So why are you wearing a sparkly, dazzly cowboy hat? What what the fuck is that? You know, it kind of reminded me of like when Nash used to like wrestle in WCW as like Vinny Vegas, and it's like <laughs> he's there's something there. There's star potential there, but they've got him presented all wrong. And that's what I feel like is going on with Clark Connors. Since he graduated, they've been presenting him all wrong. And, yeah. you know, I think it's time that people start talking about it. Like, yeah, what do we do? What do we do with these guys? Yeah, And Gabe kid, I know he's had his battle uh, with mental health, but I mean, he worked the world tag league tour. Haven't seen him since. Don't know what the heck he's doing. Like why is this guy being utilized, especially on the, these U S shows, you know, had one of the best matches in uh, the, the brand's history in America with Eddie Kingston uh, on the Nemesis tour. Um, like, these guys are super talented, can work hard. Yeah, some of them, they need tweaking on their, their character and presentation. But these guys, none of them in the New Japan Cup. Why is that? Like, Well, here's the thing, Jeremy. Um, I think part of the issue is, like, a lot of the gaijin talent that comes to New Japan they're not developed in new Japan. They're developed elsewhere where they come up with a gimmick. They come up with a character. They come up with a hook of some sort. And then they're kind of presented as a mostly fully formed product, Mm -hmm. um, you know, to new Japan, or if they are a dojo guy, which in recent years, we've had a few of those, you know, Carl Anderson and Prince Devitt and, you know, Jay White and so on and so forth. And these types of guys might go away and have an excursion and then come back in the traditional sense with a character. And there's some, some thought put into it. These guys were developed in an entirely new environment in Shibata's dojo. And I mean, I love Shibata, incredible wrestler, not necessarily someone I would think to go to if I wanted to develop promos or develop a character necessarily even though he gets his character i don't know if he would be the person i'd want shaping my character you know what i mean especially as a as a foreign worker and um i think that that might be a shortcoming potentially of the la dojo uh i don't want to put the blame on him specifically like shibata but one has to wonder you've got five guys that have six guys that have come out of there and we're all kind of like a little bit questioning what their characters are, what their motivations are, everything like that. And none of them had excursions Mm -hmm. after the fact, like they all just were in the LA dojo and working out of the LA dojo. And now they're just graduated and they're, they're not wearing black trunks, but that's about it. Um, I think that this is something that new Japan needs to put some thought and consideration into. I also think that uh, if the company's not going to do that, uh, the workers themselves need to put some thought into that. Now, I'm sure they are. I, I, I don't want to say that they haven't put forth the effort. I'm sure that they have and they're working on it, but they need some help, man. They they need help with presenting them like stars because all the they have all the tools. They're right there in front of us. We can see these guys can really fucking go, but they need something to connect them to the audience and to, you know, 
turn them into characters. And I don't, I don't mean characters in the WWE sense, but you have to, we have to know who these guys are and connect with them on some level. Yeah. You know who they are right now? They are all Hanare pre United empire. In a, in a sense. Yeah. Yeah. That's he, true. Yeah. He didn't get an excursion due to the injury. He came back. He just kind of graduated got the kind of, you know, native American type, you know, warrior, Samoan war, Tongan warrior kind of gimmick. And he was in the same spot. He was an opener, just losing, even though he graduated and had somewhat of a gimmick. And it honestly wasn't until like the United Empire switch where he started to get a little bit more of a push. Yeah, um, yeah, I think there's a, that's a good comparison. Um, so yeah, overall this was, this was a good match. Zach gets the win with an armbar. Uh, had a lot of questions here. Uh, okay, eight, okay, okay. Eight ninety says, do you think Zach is on collision course with Jabada considering his opponent so far? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that could be a possibility. Um, but I mean, so after the match was over, uh, as he was walking back up the rampway, they had Kevin Knight standing at the the top. And I guess that implies that he's going to be the next challenger. Although I also didn't love that presentation. I think that that's something they should have worked out a little bit. Cause like Kevin Knight was doing this like, aw shucks thing, like with his hands, like, come on, you know, like, you want you want to you want to fight me or not? Like maybe like thinking about it. Like it didn't come off as like a tough guy putting out you know a, a challenge. Like I would have liked him to go nose to nose with him. Right. Yeah. You know. Well, I think it, it should have been done in the ring. I think. Um, like most. Even if, it, even if it wasn't done in the ring, it just needed to come off a little more emphatic. Like after, I, I was like, "What are you asking for a title shot? Or are you being like, come on, bro? You like." Think about it. Yeah. I'm right here. <laughs> like, it just didn't look right. Like, it, it looked wrong. Yeah. So, but, yeah, I mean, if that's going to be his second title challenger and it's an L.A. Dojo guy, then maybe, hypothetically, they might be building to those two. They, they have history. I hadn't thought of it, but uh, that there's potential there. At the same time, the company's had hesitancy to use Shibata. Mm-hmm. Um and if this is supposed to be a youth title, he doesn't really fit in with that youth motif. But, you know, we've said it before on the show, this this company changes what they want titles to be on a whim all the time. So, you know, that that I guess that's not the biggest issue in the world. If they did decide they wanted to have Shibata return, though, and work in a more, um, you know, consistent manner, putting the 15-minute TV title on him might not be a bad decision for everybody involved. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I still, I, I'm seeing right now, I think new Japan is just, they just don't want to use him just kind of based on the whole health concern kind of thing. And so I don't think that we're getting another Zach Shibata match. If we do cool, but I think we're going to see one of these, hopefully one of these LA Dojo guys or a young lion potentially beat Zach to get, to get the belt. Well, there's always the chance that Ren Narita comes back around as a challenger again, too. Yeah. Uh, MJSPR asks, what are your thoughts of ZSJ running through newly graduated Lions at the first round of the TV title? Will number one sweet boy Vegeta be the one to dethrone him? Um, hmm. What are our thoughts on him running through newly graduated Lions? I don't know. Um... I mean, is that what they're doing? So, I mean, he he beat Narita. He 
just beat Connors. It seems like Knight is next. I guess. I mean, I always just think of, you know, I, I think of the fact that he also faced Ishii. <laughs> so to me, like, in fact, like, because there was so much time between, like, Ishii and Narita, I kind of forgot about the whole fact that he even beat Narita until a few moments ago. So, yeah, I mean, there there might be a, a story there. He's this uh, big boss type character for these young these young guns, but uh, I don't know if it has to necessarily be framed that they're all recent graduates, but I guess there's, there's some truth to that. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think it would be kind of a, a cool story if uh, Fujita is the one to end up beating him. Unfortunately, I just don't know if the timing's going to work out. I mean, Fujita's still kind of pretty, uh, you know, young in his run in the dojo. I do know they're trying to escalate things with young lions, but I think that'd be pretty quick. To uh, have Vegeta beat somebody, especially the caliber of Zack Sabre Jr. Have you ever seen the Murakami versus um, Shibata match? Uh, I don't think so. So Murakami um, was part of uh, God. What was uh, the Makai Club? And they were like uh, the Makai Club was like a uh, a group that was like. Anoki loyalists, like Anoki devotees in the mid 2000s, and they like worshipped Antonio Anoki as like their like god, basically. And they all were like shoot style type guys. And um, Murakami was doing these open challenges where uh, every time someone would come out and fight him, there was a bounty prize and it would like increase exponentially after every single defense. And he was on this like big roll. And uh, during Orange Crush, I think it's two. So this is probably like 2004. So, you know, Shibata is like basically a, new, a freshly young, graduated young lion with a, a lot of like anger and a chip on his shoulder. And he's the underling to Murakami. For whatever reason, unexpectedly, he makes the challenge because he wants that gold. He like wants the money and he challenges Murakami. And Murakami beats the fuck out of Shibata as his like, um, as his like, uh, you know, Kosai or whatever it's called. And I'm pretty sure it's like mostly a shoot. Like, (laughs) (laughs) and it's the most I've ever seen Shibata bleed. Like Shibata gets busted open hard way and just bleeds all over the mat. And it's one of the wildest things I've ever seen in a new Japan ring. It's a hard match to find, but if you can find it, maybe we'll look for it. But, uh, Yeah. Murakami beats the fuck out of Shibata. And I could just imagine, like, if uh, Fujita ever tried to step out of line and, like, you know, go after Zack, like, maybe he wouldn't be quite as visceral, but Zack would tie the fuck out of, like, <laughs> Fujita and just, like, break a limb or something, you know? Yeah. Uh, Rambo Slam picks this with NJPW strong as we know it coming to an end. Do you think we will see more integration of the core talent? From that brand into Japanese tours, after watching ZSJ versus Clark Connors, I feel strongly that Connors has the potential to be a big player going forward. Well, I think that the LA Dojo guys have a leg up in that regard, potentially. (laughs) Who knows? Um, I think some of the key talents that have gotten over, like most of the guys involved with Team Filthy, at least West Coast Wrecking Crew and... um, Tom Waller himself specifically, maybe Kratos seem to be people that they might want to bring over. But um, there's a lot of talent that were mainstays at a part of Strong that I'm not fully convinced are going to be 
tied to the domestic product. You know, there, there's a lot of names. I mean, we could go down the laundry list. I, I'm not, I don't think we have the time for that, but I'm not convinced that a lot of those guys are going to continue to work with the company. Yeah, especially with this new format of only doing these every so often pay-per-views. You know, they're not doing weekly TV anymore. So, yeah, there's not probably a room for a, you know, Adrian Quest or a Barrett Brown um, type of guy. Mysterioso. Um, Yeah, Cody Chun. Like, a lot of those guys that we've been seeing on Strong a lot, they're probably not going to be seen much. If they are, they'll probably be in in opening matches on these U.S. pay-per-views, but... It's going to be hard to get them pushed and especially get them over to Japan. I mean, they won't even bring their own L.A. Dojo students over um, all the time. So it's going to be hard to get some of these, um, you know, other strong guys over. But I do agree. Clark Connors does have potential to be a big player, as does Alex Coughlin, as does Gabriel Kidd, Kevin Knight, DKC. Uh, they got to utilize these guys. Uh, so moving on to the semi main, excuse me, actually main event number one. <laughs> we had the uh, IWGP Women's Title match. Mercedes Money defeats the Pirate Princess Kyrie. Twenty six minutes forty seven seconds to become the new IWGP Women's Champion. Jeremy, in fact, I would like it to be noted. That once this match was over, there was not a giant exodus of <laughs> fans leaving the building to not watch Tanahashi versus Okada, which is amazing, you know, because I was told that this was the real main event. And if it didn't go on last, that this company was going to get embarrassed and, you know, and there would be just giant swaths of empty chairs that would just, you know, shame the company for their poor treatment of Sasha Banks. <laughs> well, uh, they didn't embarrass themselves with the match placement. They did with the production, but uh, yeah, it, it was good that uh, fans yeah, stuck around to, to watch uh, Okada Tanahashi. But I got to say this match was awesome. I know there was a lot of question marks on uh, Mercedes. Can she still go? How it, what, is Mercedes going to work? Um, you know, in a New Japan slash stardom style uh, matchup. And overall, I, I thought it was awesome. I do feel, though, this is, this was more of a NXT TakeOver style match versus what she's going to get when she goes to stardom and faces off some of the, the top stars there. But if. if yeah, well, she uh, <laughs> in the news, I'll, I'll, just, I'll just say it now, but Azumi in the press conference yesterday um, issued a challenge to Mercedes, so I believe that's going to be the match for the the April show that right. uh, Mercedes is going to be doing. Um, well, but-, but one thing I like to say about that, and granted, I'm by no means a, uh, a Joshi expert, but my understanding is that Azumi typically works in these high fast paced, yeah, high speed, yeah, high speed matches that aren't necessarily the hard hitting style joshi matches that you see at the top of the card right and i think a lot of people sort of thought that like her or starlight kid might be stylistically a closer match to what um maybe sasha's comfortable doing as opposed to like taking those kicks from shuri (laughs) right But yeah, but I thought this match was awesome. I thought Mercedes looked great. You know, she's been doing a lot of training in Japan and Mexico. She had a lot of great 
you know, Lucha Libre, Mexican arm drags uh, throughout the match. And um, it was just great chemistry here. Kyrie was super over uh, his crowd as well. So that really helped. You had both great crowd reactions with both uh, women. Both women had great star-like entrances. They really elevated the, the, the kind of, you know, presence for the, the women's title in this matchup. And great back and forth. Um, like you mentioned earlier, uh, we had a, a ref bump in this match. This is a more uh, WWE uh, is um here, but a crazy table bump. Um, you know, Kyrie putting Mercedes through the, through the table on the stage. Uh, yeah, just a great back and forth matchup here. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed the match. Um, now, I don't think it was necessarily, for instance, at the same level of like Mayu versus Kyrie for the inaugural title, but there was a lot of pressure on Sasha ba- or on Mercedes. Uh, I was going to call her Vernado, but Mercedes Monet. There was a lot of pressure on I, because let's let's keep it a buck here. I don't think we've been discussing you and I too much what's been going on with her and, and everything, but like obviously there was the, the flubs with Wrestle Kingdom, right? Mm-hmm. And then after that, there was that promo video that they put out not too long ago, hyping this up. And I felt like a lot of the sound bites that they produced and did made her sound terrible. Like just, there's no ifs, ands or buts about it. She sounded horrible. Um, just from like a general, like, I don't know. I don't know how to phrase it, but like her use of the English language was just very questionable. Like there's a lot of weird phraseology, um, and I mean, I guess I'm not one to speak. I do. I, I misuse a lot of <laughs> English on this, uh, podcast, but this is also like a promo video. They should have had someone working with her to make everything sound pristine and crisp, and they made her sound kind of dumb, which was not a good look necessarily. And I, I was like, what the fuck is going on in this video? Then recently, like she had heat for, you know, not showing up to the stardom dojo and she was working and taking pictures with Joshi's from rival promotions and that like wasn't necessarily a good look. Then there was a recent interview where she, and I don't even know if this was kayfabe or shoot. That's the funny thing. It might actually just be character work where she's coming in as a heel and thinks very little of the girls she's wrestling. But she said that she wanted to wrestle AMZ and julian <laughs> julian <laughs> what the fuck <laughs> um and then obviously there's the fact that she walked out of wwe and there were all there's all of the discourse surrounding that there's just a lot that was leading up to this match and the pressure was on to a major major extent because i think that there was a lot of shortcomings and flubs in the interim between her leaving WWE and then this match actually taking place. And I think the pressure was immense and they didn't necessarily need to have a match of the year caliber match, but they needed to have a a classic great match. And I think they succeeded in that. I think they went out there and they told a great story and they worked. A lot of people had questions, you know, would she be able to work, a style different than the one she worked in WWE. And I think for the most part, yes, she did. I don't know if it was necessarily what I would call classic Joshi, but it was very high level, very competent. 
uh, very emotional. They gave these women a lot of time and they didn't seem gassed or blown up or, or lost in any way. And it was to some extent hard hitting mm-hmm. a lot of high flying. I thought that um, some of the best stuff was down the tail end when um, Kyrie went to go hit the insane elbow and uh, Mercedes got her feet up and she mm-hmm. looked like she broke her arm on her feet and then Mercedes, uh, you know, went to go do the uh, the frog splash, and then she landed on her knees, and just the back and forth, everything was really, really good. And down the stretch, at the very, very end, um, Mercedes hit her new finisher, the one that they flubbed in the the Tokyo Dome. So they kind of had a, a redemptive spot there, and the crowd was just living and breathing and, and super hot. I mean, I think that overall the show had interest from the audience there, but I think that the idea that this was the match that sold the show showed because I think that the crowd was the most engaged for this match overall for the entire night. Yeah, this was, yeah, the crowd was the highest for this match. You can click, this was the match of the night. Uh, Both these women were stars here. And like you mentioned, just overall, it's a great matchup, great storytelling. Like you mentioned with uh, Mercedes working over, the you know the elbow of Kyrie all throughout the match and that you know played in later and uh, Mercedes hitting a lot of the, the hits from you know Eddie Guerrero you know trying to do the three amigos trying to do the frog splash getting stopped in that and uh, bringing back you know the, the old bank statements for you know near submission as well there was a spot where Kyrie put the put her in the bank statement uh, for a great near submission um, then like you mentioned they were able to uh, redeem the what she calls the the money maker uh, the gory uh, Hold into a, a DDT was able to hit that Kyrie or on Kyrie. So uh, Mercedes gets the win. One, two, three. It's the uh, second ever IWGP Women's Champion. They they hit the you know the champion music for her as they put the belt around her waist, and, and the crowd loved it. Yeah, I also liked the idea that uh, she paid tribute to Hannah Kimura with her, oh, that's right. her, yeah, yeah, yeah. her ring attire and her gear. That was really. Uh, I thought it was a nice touch and very fitting. Um, I was surprised that they let her have the dollars rain down during her entrance, since that's something we generally associate with Kazushika Okada. And then if you notice, when he came out for the main event, he didn't have the Okada dollars. So a little surprised by that. But um, yeah, I, I thought the match was great. I mean, there's a couple things I can nitpick, but uh, the match was very, very, very good. I'd probably go... Uh, see, like, I think I'm going to adopt... I was listening to Voices of Wrestling recently, and uh, Joe Lanza mentioned how, you know, when he feels like there's a score in between the traditional quarter star ratings, he's just going to start going plus. And once he said that, I was like, that's an incredible idea. Why have I never thought (laughs) of implementing something like that? And I think he he mentioned that he took that system from someone else. And uh, I'm just going to take it as well. I think it's great. So uh, to me, I didn't think this was quite four and a quarter, but it was like in between. I'd probably go four plus on this. Okay. I'm going four and a half on it. Um, I enjoyed it a lot. Thought it was a match of the night and definitely uh, it's a great matchup between these two women. Yeah. And you're not alone. I think there's a lot of people that were a little bit higher on it than me as well. But uh, I thought it was a really great match. And uh, I am interested to see where this leads because I'm not sure how many dates they have long-term for Mercedes. And um, it's going to be very interesting to see 
what defenses she has, where she defends it, uh, how they showcase the title moving forward, and once they decide to take it off of her, how is that going to go? Because I can I can't think of too many names that I think right now she she would be willing to actually drop that title to you know and i think that that's where some of the intrigue of all this is you know going to come into play yeah a couple questions here uh camilo on twitter asks can you see sasha defending the njpw women's title in aew or will she be mainly programmed here in the states um i mean you never say never but i think that um that would probably unless it was like a forbidden door situation I think it would probably be, uh, for a lot of business reasons, a bad decision. Um, I think that with the idea that she might potentially sign with AEW at some point down the road, having her show up in any capacity prior to actually signing a contract would probably kill any intrigue for her and for the company, you know, if, if they ever want to do business together. Um, and it also, if she wants to go back to WWE, it might not be a good look for her to, you know, show up on the company. Plus if I'm AEW and I don't have a a long-term contract on her, why would I give her my platform just so that she could turn around and potentially go back to WWE, which I, I think is still very much on the table, you know? Right. And we talked about earlier with, um, AEW not promoting new Japan stuff. So I really don't see that much of a benefit right now that to, you know, shoehorn in a IWGP women's match on, you know, what a 10 minute match on dynamite. I just don't think that would be the best use. Right. But if they decide to do like a forbidden door situation, that might make a little bit more sense. And there might be, there might be a, an opportunity to do business that way. Uh, Barry Walsh, long question here. It says, after seeing some folks order battle in the Valley, just for Sasha, and skip all other matches in one website, suggesting she should win the belt off Okada. A lot of people are talking about how great Sasha was and throwing all the plaudits, but you need a dance partner, and Kyrie's excellent, but all the Sasha fandom is overshadowing the other Joshi and not highlighting them. It's a case of wait and see, or when she goes, will all the new fans who come with her go with her? All Also, who skips matches of Okada and Tanahashi? Uh, nobody wants a journey anymore, just the damn ending. Um, you know, I don't know. I I think I'm pretty isolated in a lot of respects from that type of fandom, um, (laughs) and coverage. Uh, I mean, we're a new Japan, like podcast. So (laughs) I, I don't really personally deal a lot with these generalized type of, uh, mainstream. I don't, I'm trying to use the right words, (laughs) you know, I don't deal with dumb. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> we, we don't we don't interact with dumb people, bro. <laughs> so I don't even see this shit. Like it's not on our timeline. I don't know who the fuck these people even would be. Um, most of the stuff I've seen from people that I respect and like have been positive. And you know, make no mistakes about it. We have always liked and been fans of Sasha, both me and Jeremy and, and most of the members of social suplex podcast network. So I wasn't surprised. It's not like she went out there and had a match and I, I didn't think she was capable of it. I, in my opinion, in modern times, I think Sasha Banks is the greatest in ring talent that North America has ever produced for women's wrestling. Um, bar none. I, I don't think there's 
hardly anyone else that's really in the conversation unless you want to go a historical aspect and talk about like Mildred Burke or, or June Byers, basically. Yeah. Um, which that's a, that's a whole different type. I mean, that's like comparing Luthes to Will Ospreay or <laughs> Kenny Omega. Yeah. No, it really is. And like, that's what we're talking. It's a, it's a totally different thing, but that's what we're, that that's where you start heading when you get into that type of territory. Um, if, if someone did bought the pay-per-view and they just wanted to watch her and that's all they got out of it. Sure. I, I that's for them. Whatever. Guess what? New Japan got their money, <laughs> you know, and if they paid for the show and they just watched the one match and they didn't want to watch anything else, then maybe this product's not for them and it's not for everybody. And that's fine. I, I do. Do I think there will be some people that watch her that cross over in their fandom? Sure. I think that's definitely going to happen. Do I think that maybe the Venn diagram of, of Sasha fans and new Japan fans maybe isn't, that deep that's possible and there might be and i think when if when and if she does leave which i think she will i I don't think i don't see this being a long-term thing they'll probably go with her you know i mean that's what happened with when mox came into the g1 a lot of people were tuning into new japan for it and then when he went to AEW, most of those people went to AEW or or stopped watching so i mean you can't keep everybody but uh I do think it would be pretty stupid to watch a show this good and, and, and pay for it and not, not watch it. And I think any idea that she should beat Okada is uh, not good faith and, and just literally people that are fucking idiots. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think she's uh, overshadowing the other Joshi because she really hasn't had much interactions with the Joshi besides um, Kyrie. Um, and New, New Japan doesn't really have a full "quote unquote" women's division yet, so I don't think she's overshadowing those women whatsoever. And you know, New Japan starting very different fan bases, and it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting to see once she finally does step in stardom how they even react to her and how that integration even takes place. I will say this: so far, so far at this point, the entire Sasha experiment has done nothing for stardom. Right, it's been all, all it's been all New Japan. It's all been about New Japan. It's all been about Sasha, and I love how she's always like New Japan and Stardom, and she just she she like tags them on because it's like she, I think like she's I think she might be contractually obligated <laughs> to mention Stardom when she mentions New Japan. Yeah, but like she hasn't even she hasn't shown up in any capacity on any of their shows or their social media or really in any way whatsoever she's a non-entity to that promotion at this point aside from the fact that she holds the iwgp women's title which really hasn't even been to my understanding anything in startup it's not like it's showing up on the shows it's not like it's in the video packages it's not like something they're really talking about it really is just kind of a new japan title for right now and I'm sure that's going to change with Azumi, you know, being the next challenger, uh, which I, I'll be looking forward to that match. But uh, I think it is high time for Stardom to get something out of this deal because so far all they've really gotten is Tam Nakano getting hoed. Yeah. Uh, main event, number two, IWGP World Heavyweight title match. The Rainmaker Kazuchika Okada retains and defeats the ace Hiroshi Tanahashi 21 minutes and 8 seconds. Jeremy, um, 
I am ready to never see Tanahashi and Okada wrestle each other ever again. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I know we talked about last week, you know, it's, it's usually a walking four and a half star match. Usually, you know, they, they play mm-hmm. the hits and stuff like that. Um, but that was not quite the case here. Overall, I think it's still a very, it was still a very good match, a very good main event. But when you compare this match to the library of Tanahashi Okada matches, it was definitely the uh, lowest match that they have had in their you know resume in their history. You know the match that we saw in in Dallas in 2019 um, that was like a four and a half star range match, and was you know I thought a kind of a great way to kind of end uh, their series, but you know kind of r- running it back here. Um, to me, I, I went four stars flat on this match, but uh, it just was not quite the same as even that that Dallas match or any of their other encounters in Japan. Um, it was really missing that you know that unique kind of closing sequence that they normally have, where they're reversing each other's finishers, and it just did not have like quite the energy and kind of layout as a typical Tanahashi and Okada match uh, normally has, and that's also because Tanahashi. He's broken down and is not, um, you know, the full ace that he used to be. Yeah, this kind of reminded me of when Mizawa and Kawada had, like, their final match in Noah in, like, 05. And it was so, so far beneath the level of matches that they'd had in their prime. And I think there might have been a Kobashi-Mizawa match like I think their final match may potentially have also been like that, if I recall. Um, and that's just where I think we're at. Like I, I just, I felt sad watching this to be honest. And that's not to say I, I'm actually lower on this than you are, Jeremy. I think it was, this was to me closer to like three and a half, three and a quarter, something like that. Mm. Uh, or I'm sorry, three and three quarters, you know, so it was a good match, but for something that was this, I mean, to me, the defining rivalry uh, that, you know, kind of heralded the the spark and the boom period for New Japan. Um, I was hoping that we, like we said, got them playing the hits. And I think we got a, a measure of that. But this was a lot slower and a lot lower in in just quality and caliber to what I'm used to seeing from both of these guys. Um, also, I mean... I got to go back to the crowd. I mean, I felt like the crowd fucking sucked during this match. And I, I remember us watching the same matchup a couple years ago in Dallas live. And the, the audience was on their feet, losing their mind and they hadn't even touched. And it was like minutes of people just like freaking out. And when these two guys got together, there was a very mild, holy shit chant. And I also felt like, should you get, I don't know if you should be chanting holy shit at Tanahashi and Okada. <laughs> like, I get it. The, the holy shit thing is like when you're seeing something that you're, you can't believe it's happening and it's a very like indie-rific chant. But I kind of hold Okada Tanahashi in this like reverenced like awe where like I don't want to be like, holy shit. <laughs> but it didn't matter because that was the the full extent of the pre-match fervor. It was very mild and it was just a very small spattering. And then that was it. And I was I was really expecting the classic 
oh my God, I can't believe we're seeing this. And everyone's on their feet and stomping and going crazy. And that just didn't happen. And that threw me off. And I was like, okay, this, this whole thing, like these people really did come to see just Sasha. <laughs> well, I mean, to, to their defense, it was a long show. It started 45 no. minutes late. Duh. No, bro. No, <laughs> no, I don't care how late it, it's fucking Okada. It's fucking Tanahashi in America. You're one of, it's only, this is the last time it's ever going to happen. You're one of, seven or eight thousand people that ever saw it live you should feel blessed (laughs) (laughs) and privileged and they were they were ungrateful i i don't care (laughs) (laughs) but uh the match was good and that's that's about the most i could say for it i mean if you've seen tanahashi nokata this was that but a much lower and diminished version of that a lot slower yeah, towards the end, uh, Okada goes for the Rainmaker. Tanahashi countered to a small package for a good near fall. Then Okada got up, hit the Insgiri, Koroflosion, followed by the Rainmaker to uh, get the win. After the match, Okada, he thanked the crowd for his support, and he said that him and Tanahashi should reform their dream tag team and challenge for the IWGP tag team titles. Um, and then the crowd popped for that, and then uh, Mercedes Monet came out and thank the crowd and said that her and Okada had a lot in common, uh, that she likes money. He likes to make it rain. They should team up. And so Okada seemed to like that idea. They uh, held their belts up together, clinked the belts and celebrated to end the night. Well, there was, you know, that talk back during the, uh, the uh, historic crossover show that maybe potentially the companies would consider doing an intergender tag team title potentially mm-hmm. you know yeah um i don't know if i'm necessarily in favor of doing a title but i could see them doing like a annual tournament between the two companies you know that might be cool and maybe involve sasha and, and okada i mean i'm just kind of spitballing here but it, it does seem to be that they might want to do at least a match with them teamed up against somebody yeah definitely uh, some questions here. Uh, VE30 says, do you think Tanahashi will be at the ROH pay-per-view as he had no schedule on the New Japan Cup? Yeah, I mean, that's uh, a possibility. I hadn't thought of that. I didn't even know. Is there an ROH pay-per-view? The uh, Super Card of Honor, WrestleMania weekend. Oh, that's a long time away, though. Yeah, it's like a... Oh, two- but he's saying because he's not, like, in the New Japan Cup. Right. He's kind of freed up. Yeah, uh, possibly. Who knows? Yeah, I mean, could happen. Um Okay, okay, 890 says, thoughts on the Tanahashi Okada team? Should they win the belts right now, or should Bishamon get a long-established run? <laughs> At this point, they got a title defense. That's a long-established run in this company. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Bishamon has nothing to worry about. The Mega Aces are like one of the worst tag teams ever. <laughs> Anytime Okada and Tanahashi team, they usually losing. <laughs> I saw something online where, like, Robbie Eagles and Jcast were like snipping back and forth about Leo Rush and something about this title match. I don't know. I didn't. I didn't spend enough time doing doing my research. <laughs> but they were, I think that they were like implying, like you know, did, did Okada even realize that when he wanted to go after the tag team titles, that it's his stablemates that hold those belts? You know, right? Yeah. I don't know, um, but I did think that once. Once I saw that pointed out, I was like, "Wait a second. And then, but I also didn't really take that that seriously. And now, it, like, we'll get to it. But it looks like they are actually getting a title shot. Yeah, they are. Yeah, the, the anniversary <laughs> show. On. So it's like, okay, cool. I guess. Um, you know, I don't know. 
It's whatever. <laughs> yeah, I doubt they're winning. They're probably not going to win. Yeah. Um, Less Commission 7252, would you guys say that Mercedes stands will be very much happy that her match was better than the main event between two of the best New Japan today and Future Legends? Maybe, but I don't know if those fans were even tuned in enough to uh, watch the match or, you know, I, I have no clue. I, I don't know much about Sasha's fans except for when they were are like when they were freaking out online, everything they were saying seemed super unreasonable. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure they, they're all happy for her. Um, she had a great performance. They should be happy, but uh, yeah. those kind of fans, if they're comparing to that, I just on. can't imagine going hard for any wrestler like this. Like, and I mean, I, there's definitely some people I love in this company and in general, but like you see me doing this shit for like Tanahashi. Like I, I would never bro. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> uh, Dark Soldier says, was it wise to put Okada versus Tanahashi in only one week's notice? I feel like that's a match that deserves more build given its history. No, I don't. I disagree. I think uh, I think it doesn't matter at this point, personally. I, I mean, I, I think that it was utilized in a perfectly acceptable way at this point in 2023. Yeah, and considering the tickets were already sold out, I think this was a great match to do. The only the only reason I would disagree is if you if your argument was they didn't capitalize on their ability to sell more pay-per-views by building it up larger. But we already kind of know in most cases that pay-per-view buys are a last minute thing anyways. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't necessarily need a long production or promotion for especially like a pro wrestling pay-per-view um but if they were banking on the idea that a u.s audience would pay more for this particular match maybe they should have promoted it earlier if if that was even possible i mean it's not their style to do that but uh as far as like you know this particular like for the live audience it was fine Uh, the tickets were already sold yeah then uh, Barry Wall says, "Has the average younger wrestling fan got the attention span? Do, do they have the attention span for New Japan matches? Can go quite long, and most people these days barely watch and only want results." I saw some comments from people who skipped the real main event of Battle and Valley and complained it would go for over twenty minutes. Is New Japan doomed to fail with its expansion plans if the average twenty-something can't muster any attention and instead would rather just see the results? Um, I mean, does that exist? Yes, that definitely exists. Are there fans that have been conditioned to enjoy shorter wrestling matches? Uh, Definitely. But I think just because if you just read a comment on the internet from somebody, do I think that's indicative of a wider, like, does that tell us the story of what all wrestling fans want or you know, have an interest in, I I don't necessarily think that's true. I would need something that's a little more conclusive and a little bit more scientific based, you know, some research. Like, I mean, I don't know. AEW has, I know that they're not the perfect uh, comp here, but like they do longer wrestling matches on television. And typically when they do a longer wrestling match, their ratings go up. Same thing with WWE. Recently, they started under Triple H. They started doing longer television matches, and their numbers improved. Um, 
So, I mean, I don't know that that's necessarily the case. Do I think that New Japan can be overly reliant on long matches and maybe needs to freshen things up? I do. I do think that that could be a potential problem and it might be a barrier of entry for some wrestling fans, but I I wouldn't take what a few people wrote on the internet as being the gospel about how Gen X wrestling fans consume wrestling. Well, you know, I think Gen Z, I mean, uh, well, I just think in general, there's kind of this kind of false narrative that, you know, people's attention spans for media are short. You know, I, I my shoot jobs in digital marketing and, you know, there, there, there's one camp that tells you like, yeah, people have short attention spans and, you know, everything has to be super short for them nowadays. But in reality, when you look at it, look at how many people binge watch TV shows, watch long Marvel movies. Um, there's not really an attention span problem. There is a, I would say, a content quality problem. If you're producing uh, great content, no matter what it is and no matter how long it is, if it's great you're going to hold people's attention for how, no matter how long it is. Um, and for the fans that watch New Japan, I think they like that long quality match and usually can hold the attention span of New Japan fans. And, you know, Wrestle Kingdom, for great example, is usually, what, a five-hour, six-hour show. And that thing breezes by because they structure the card so well and all the matches are so great. Um, so I think overall, if you're putting on a great show, and you can you can hold a fan's attention span. Yeah, you don't hear me complaining about the length of shows when the show's great. You only hear me complaining about it when the show is not up to the standard of entertainment that I want out of a show that, that that's that long. Uh, and I, I concur with what you're saying there, Jeremy. I mean, that's something I've also recently read a report on is, you know, definitely like with the TikTokization of society, there is definitely something to the idea of quick, fun, fast, entertaining content that's sort of uh, picking up steam in the zeitgeist. But there's sort of been an overcorrection to that to where recently YouTube, like there was a there was a time recently where like longer YouTube videos were becoming passe mm-hmm. and were falling out of style and weren't were not in vogue. But for whatever reason, whatever reason, recently long form video casts on YouTube have gained exponential uh, attention, and it seems like there's a correction in the marketplace where there are people that want longer form content when it's good, and that's sort of you know, and you hear people saying that that's not true, but the numbers are actually showing the opposite of it. Right, and the, the algorithms kind of reward longer videos because that makes the user use their website longer. So YouTube, Facebook, they, they want people putting longer videos. So that means that's the longer that you're spending time on their app. More ads, too. Yeah. All right, so uh, that wraps up uh, Battle in the Valley. Uh, I think we've got like about 20 minutes uh, left here, so I think we need to kind of run through this uh, last uh, part of the show here. So um, today we had the uh, Noah Keiji Muto Grand Final Pro Wrestling Last Loved Holdout in the Tokyo Dome. This was uh, Keiji Muto's retirement show. Um, for the New Japan uh, matches on the show, we had uh, Gato and Taiji Ishimori defeating uh, Mazada and Nosawa Rangai in Nosawa Rangai's final matchup. Hiromu Takahashi de- defeated Amakusa uh, 11 minutes, 2 seconds. Kazuchika Okada Defeated Kaito Kiyomiya, 16 minutes, 32 seconds. Tetsuya Naito 
defeated Kijimoto 28 minutes and 58 seconds. Uh, and then after that, uh, Muto called out uh, Chono, and they had an impromptu match with Taiga Hitori as a special referee. And Chono uh, defeated Kijimuto one minute and 30 seven, 37 seconds. I have not had a chance to see the show yet. I don't think you have you seen it yet either, Josh. I was uh, un, during my work schedule today. I was unable to give the attention to the to the show that I wanted, and then we got you know I got sick, and I spent about three hours sleeping before I came up to uh, do this podcast. So I also have not seen any of this, but I am I was spoiled already. I've seen I already knew these results, and I think we can probably discuss it briefly a couple of these talking points here but uh i will watch this show before next week and probably have a little bit further expanded thoughts yeah same here um i had a question here from barry wall so you think it's strange that an event under the noah banner had its wrestlers lose four out of four matches to new japan i know new japan are the bigger company but does that not look second rate and now now at least on perception at least on perception Okay, so I want to say this on the air. Recently, we were in a New Japan, we're in a New Japan chat group on like Facebook Messenger with a few different people that were friends within the industry, and um, the topic of what was going to happen here with Kiyomiya and Okada came up, and they were throwing out all the different options, just like we've discussed on the show. But I told them most likely Okada will defeat Kiyomiya in a super definitive way in a relatively short amount of time. And that's exactly what happened. He hit the kid with the rainmaker, stopped the count at two, picked him up, hit him with uh, the, what's it called? The Cobra flosion or whatever. He did the Inzaguri, did the Cobra flosion, um, and then did the rainmaker. And then hit him with another rainmaker to definitively pin him one, two, three in like just around 16 minutes. And I, I've heard the matches very good. I've heard uh, Kiyomiya had a good showing and had his moments, but um, there were people that were very upset that this is what was going to happen. I know that, and I don't mean to say this in a disparaging way, because that is not what this is. This is not like me as a New Japan fan disparaging Noah. But the reality of, this is just reality, guys. This is the truth of the situation. Noah in size, in scope, in um, general public perception and their like the type of audiences they draw and the type of like attention they have, they are comparable in the West right now to like a TNA or like a Ring of Honor. And in scope, New Japan is like a WWE. They're both big names. They're both well known, but they are very, they're on totally different trajectories. And I think the problem here is a lot of because Noah is a legacy name because it because of the break off with Mizawa and all the great shows they did in those early two thousands eras. People think of Noah as well as all Japan as being these big companies, but the reality is they haven't been big companies for like fifteen to like twenty years. And in fact, dra- uh, until recently, Dragon Gate was bigger than both of those companies in almost every aspect when it comes to attention and drawing and, and everything like that. And in the West, people just don't – they don't realize this, especially like more casual fans. They don't realize 
just how vastly different in size and scope these companies are. And I think also the fact that they have a really great streaming service probably, you know, is one of the reasons that people think of them as being closer to being equals. They're not equals. They're not even close to being equals. When people were complaining about Kiyomiya not beating Okada, that would literally, to give you an example, be like complaining if Josh Alexander was wrestling Roman Reigns. Should Josh Alexander, the current champion, facing the current champion of WWE, beat him clean on an impact show in, in a hypothetical universe? And if you thought to yourself, no, that would never happen. WWE is never going to ever, ever, ever let Roman Reigns as the champion and ace drop a, drop a loss to a, a smaller rival company, even if it was a big show. They're just not going to do that. Neither is New Japan. Like, you know, if, if we were talking about him, Okada facing like John Moxley or CM Punk or, or Roman Reigns, for example, then maybe there's a discussion to be had about him taking a loss, but he's not losing to Kato Kiyomiya. Like, it doesn't matter that it was on a, a Tokyo Dome show. It's just not happening. Right. And I mean, what does New Japan benefit to have any of their guys lose on this show? This is not their show. And like, there is no benefit for Hiromu uh, losing, Okada losing, Naito losing, um, you know, Gato and Taiji Ishimori losing. There's no benefit to New Japan to be on this show and have their top guys go out there and lose. Like you mentioned, like the second rate, you know, it's the number two in in the company or in the country, uh, Prosling Noah. So obviously, you know, New and, and realistically, they're not. Stardom is a bigger company than them. That's right. So in, actually, yeah, in, in every aspect, they're realistically closer to like a number three or number four. Right. Um, so yeah, Noah is the one getting the rub by New Japan being willing to work with them and be on this show. So Noah's getting the benefit of that New Japan, you know, you know, branding and star power on this show. And I do think, even though it was a definitive law, I do think Kiyomiya probably got. Um, a little bit of the rub with wrestling Okada and being elevated on that level to be in in a matchup with Okada. Uh, I I do think that there's a a good possibility that this probably long-term did hurt him from a booking perspective, the way they laid out the match. It wasn't what I had expected. I wanted them to go out there and have like a all-time classic type of performance. It didn't seem that that's what happened. But at the end of the day, if you're questioning bad booking decisions from Noah then you probably haven't been paying attention to this company for the past two years. They've been making a lot of bad booking decisions with their talent all up and down the card for a very long time. So this is nothing new. I mean, the reality is this was a cash grab. They were capitalizing on Muto's retirement and utilizing New Japan guys to to help bolster that. But at the end of the day, they weren't looking long-term to, you know, what happens to this kid once he loses to Okada and he was always going to lose to Okada and anyone that's mad about it. I don't know what to tell you. Like it, it, he was not going to lose to Kiyomiya unless they were planning to do something really big business wise down the road. And he was going to beat Kiyomiya even worse the second time, you know? Yeah. Well, I think that's all we can talk about really for, for this show for this week. We'll have some more thoughts uh, next week. Um, we have the Fantastica Mania Tour starting on Wednesday. I'll run through, uh, I believe, next Monday or Tuesday. We've got several shows here that will be uh, running I don't through. think, because of the short time, I don't think we need to run through each and every single night. But the big things that are going on, they have 
ta- uh, basically a tag team series the first few nights where uh, they have like strange bedfellows. So people that wouldn't normally team together like Rudos and he- and um, and uh, uh, what are they called? What are the baby faces Te- called? Technicos. And yeah, the Rudos and the Technicos. So on uh, night one, they've got Tanahashi and Mystico teaming up against Atlantis Jr. and Ultimo Guerrero. Uh, in the main event night two, they have a tournament that is running with the same theme. So they've uh, got Atlantis Jr. and Templario versus Volador Jr. and Mystico in the main event. Um, night three. Oh, you know, I'm sorry. The tournament starts on night three. So it's kind of the same idea, but they've got um, factions. So they've got Bushi and Teton from LIJ taking on Dolce Gardenia and Ray Cometa. Um, and then. Uh, on the other side of the bracket in the main event, they've got uh, Magia Blanca, who that's his first time uh, here on this tour. We have not seen him before. He's teaming with Volador Jr. to take on um, Atlantis Jr. and Ultimo Guerrero. And then on night four, the winners of those matches will face off against each other in tournament action to crown the winner of this mini tournament. Night five, we've got singles action. Volador Jr. versus Templario is the semi-main event. The main event, Teton versus Soberano Jr. I think there is a title defense on one of those two matches. And then um, night six from Cork and Hall, the main event, Mystico versus Atlantis Jr., which last time Atlantis Jr. was um, on this tour, he was making his debut under the, the gimmick. And now he's really made a name for himself and is one of the top talents uh, in CMLL, and he's taking on Mystico, who's still essentially the main top guy in the company. So that's going to be a great way to kind of send things off. And all down the undercard, there's a mixture of New Japan and CMLL guys. There's a couple people that we haven't seen before, like Magia Blanca, uh, Capitan Sasita, um, Ray Cometa, Ray Cometa. Um, and I'm sure we haven't done the deep research on these individuals, but you know, by next week, I'm sure we'll have a, a lot more to kind of talk about and discuss when it comes to these shows. Yeah, but Fantastic Mania, I'm glad it's back. It's been gone due to COVID. It's always a, a very fun tour when these Luchadors come to uh, Japan. Um, in other news, we did get the card for the anniversary event, which will be happening March 6th in Ota City Gym. Uh, in conjunction with the New Japan Cup. So we'll have ELP and Kenta versus TMDK, Kojima, Tamatanga, and Yano versus uh, Aussie Open and Will Ospreay, uh, Strong Style versus House of Torture, LIJ, Sonata, Shingo, and Naito versus Hanare, Great Okan, Cobb of the United Empire. We'll have uh, Leo Rush and Yo versus Bushi and Hiromu. Uh, the two New Japan Cup first-round matchups, Yujiro versus Shota Umino and Ishii versus Dave Finley. And then the main event will be the IWGP Tag Team title match. Uh, Bishamon defending against the Mega Aces of Hiroshi Tanahashi and Kazuchika Okada. Quick news items. Azumi wants a shot at Mercedes Monet for the uh, IWGP women's title. Um, the high-speed champion issued a challenge to Monet on Monday during a uh, press conference. So it looks like we're getting that. Um, Roughneck Shotomino and Son of Strong Style Renderita will be teaming for the first time since their excursion on March 11th as they take on the dream team of Tanahashi and Okada. That sounds awesome. Um, Tamatanga earlier this week teased the idea of WWE saying in a Tokyo Sports interview, I'm always the guy at the top. Look what I have accomplished. And he starts talking about all his different accomplishments and ultimately he could end up anywhere, whether that's New Japan or WWE. 
because he mentioned that they're knocking on his door hard and he might say hello. Yuji Nagata this week was is was crowned the new Triple Crown Heavyweight Champion, the oldest in history at 54 years old. He defeated Kento Miyahara at All Japan Pro Wrestling's Pro Wrestling Day Mania X on Sunday from Cork and Hall, and he's their 69th champion in the title's lineage and the 30th wrestler to hold the belt. Shuji Ishikawa confronted Nagata after the match and is challenging. We did have a question on this. I think we're going to uh, probably push that question to next week. And uh, Mercedes Monet has unveiled her new mini documentary con- chronicling her New Japan debut. Um, talks about her time uh, at Wrestle Kingdom 17 and the build up to that and her eight month hiatus uh, leaving WWE. I think that's on uh, what New Japan World? That's on her, her YouTube channel. Oh, so that might be worth checking out. And then finally, uh, March 13th, Monday in Sydney, the international challenge match will be taking place as uh, Mega TJP takes on Robbie Eagles, and that's, I believe, from World Series of Wrestling. Yeah, so that should be fun. So, yeah, these uh, questions here, uh, we're going to push these to next week. Let's go to a recommended match of the week. So uh, last week for the excursion match of the week, I recommended uh, Ace Austin and Chris Bay. First, Kushida and Kevin Knight from uh, Impact Wrestling. Yeah, um, I would say this. Uh, typically, when I, whenever I get something recommended from you on one of these Impact television tapings, I usually kind of know what to expect. It's usually going to be pretty – and actually, I think their show is probably pretty good. I don't watch it, but anytime I tune in and watch a match, it's usually pretty good. But it's also a TV-style match, and it's usually pretty short and just doesn't really reach the – the lofty standards we have for the excursion match of the year candidacy, but this was pretty darn close. I do think that they needed to give them a little bit more time, but uh, did you see this match, Jeremy? No, not yet. Oh, you, you're, you're going to like this one. You should definitely watch it because they did all the flips, all the high flying spots. This was something that would have felt very much at home in a new Japan ring at one of their major shows for like, say the junior titles. Um, I think they did need a little bit more time and that's the only real gripe I have about it was they cut the, the time short on them. Uh, I think a lot of the match was centered around building Kevin Knight up as a big star. They're doing a lot for this kid right now and it's, it's working. Um, but yeah, now this was definitely like a spot fest. So if you're someone that's like looking for someone to sell a limb or, you know, work a hold, this wasn't maybe not the match for you, but <laughs> this was high octane junior style wrestling and a great way to open the show. Uh, I'd probably go like three and three quarters near four stars. Very, 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 very good. And um, ultimately, yes, uh, the Bullet Club team did pick up the win here. Um, they... Uh, finished off uh, Kevin Knight with the Art of Finesse and then um, Austin with the full. And I think they did that on the outside and then, or on the apron and then rolled him up. Um, they only got about 10 minutes and that's the, the biggest gripe I have about this, but three and three quarters in 10 minutes, that's telling you something. If, if, they, if they'd given them 15 or 20 minutes, you'd be looking at a classic here. These four guys can go and this match is free on YouTube. If you haven't seen it, I recommend it. Yeah, it's also up on uh, New Japan World 2 on the, under the Impact section, so definitely. Uh, I, I tried to find it there. I could not find it there. It wasn't there? I saw it there when I was looking through. Maybe well, they- I tried to look in there, and I couldn't find it. I don't know, but I did find it on YouTube. Nice. Um, and then you recommended for me Shinya Hashimoto versus Jushin Thunder Liger uh, from uh, February 1994. 
Um, this was a uh, open weight uh, matchup here. Um, actually, this was a battle liger in the, in the battle liger attire. I think um, it's one of the only times he ever unveiled. I mean, this was the first time he ever showed up in that attire. And um, yeah, it was like one of the few times he ever did it. Yeah, I, I thought the, the battle attire looked pretty great. And overall, I thought this was a uh, great matchup here. I know um, Liger didn't have overall the best run when trying to be a heavyweight. But in this open weight match, in this scenario, I thought he looked great. The crowd was really into him. And, you know, I, I think overall New Japan does love um, underdogs. And so the fans are definitely behind him every time he got some big offense on um, Hashimoto. The crowd was definitely digging it. Um, Liger does that that great um, forward, you know, capo kick thing. That was yeah. a, a great um, move on to Hashimoto. Hashimoto was doing some, of course, he's a nasty striker and just destroying Liger with the palm strikes um, and the chops. And so, you know, Liger had to overcome this kind of, you know, bigger heavyweight bruiser um, and kind of use his high-flying, you know, junior offense um, to try and stop Hashimoto. But he did go in the paint with Hashimoto. He was, you know, throwing palm strikes back. Um, to Hashimoto as well, kind of having this hard-hitting uh, matchup. But uh, in the end, uh, Liger was just not strong enough to stop Hashimoto, and Hashimoto uh, got the win. That's pretty much a very accurate portrayal of, of you know what happened there. Yeah, um, I love this match. It's really great. Battle of the Champions, both reigning champions at the time. Really, really cool. Um, where would you go ratings-wise in this one? Uh, probably like four and a quarter. That sounds about right. Yeah. Yeah. Even though it's funny, I think Dave gave it like three and a half. I was like, this is way higher than that. I, yeah, I don't understand Dave. Dave's ratings of new Japan are all over the place. I don't know, (laughs) (laughs) but it's got, if you look on cage match, it's, it's overall rating is much higher. Yeah. All right. So, uh, for this week, I got recommended match. You know, Dave, Dave wasn't a big Hashimoto guy. Really? Yeah, I mean, you look at his ratings, he, he never really, I mean, I don't think he was a big, like, I don't think he personally loved Hashimoto-style work. Gotcha. Um, so, for this week, for recommended match of the week, going to go back to Wrestle Kingdom 6, KG Muto versus Tetsuya Naito. So, I thought it'd be an interesting match to watch based oh. off of uh, today's uh Retirement match that uh, Muto had on Naito. <laughs> yeah, I've seen it before. That's that's going to be an interesting one. Um, and then for the excursion match of the week, I'm going with the recent uh, All Japan Pro Wrestling uh, Triple Crown title match between Kento Miyahara, one of my favorites, uh, against uh, Blue Justice Yuji Nagata. We put out the tweet, fuck him up, Blue Justice, and he did just that. So the oldest champion in the history of... <laughs> or the youngest, oldest champion. What's what does he usually say? Uh, he says, um, "I'm the oldest." How old is he now? Uh, fifty. How old is he? He's like fifty nine, fifty eight. I don't know. I think he's fifty four. He says, "I'm the 54. oldest, the oldest fifty four year old." I will do my best today. <laughs> yeah, the, the oldest fifty four year old champion in history, Yuji Nagata. So, um, yeah, and I've heard really great things about that match. So, yeah, I've heard great things. I've heard like it's like. A match of the year contender close to it. Uh, wow, what, what people are saying. So, well, the good thing is it's available on YouTube, and I sent you the link, and I think we can send that link out. I don't know. Yeah, well, I don't know if it's I don't know if it's one of those ones we got to keep on the on the low so it doesn't get taken down, or if we're or if it's like from all Japan. I don't know. Right, Google it. You guys will you'll find it. So <laughs> <laughs> that's the excursion match of the week, and that's gonna wrap things up for us here. 
Uh, next week, I believe we'll have uh, Chris Sampsa on the show to uh, help us preview the New Japan Cup. We're, we're going to need the help because we got to cover both Fantastic Mania this week and preview the New Japan Cup and kind of give our like trailing thoughts on the Tokyo Dome show. Because full disclosure, we didn't anticipate talking about that this week. We thought that was getting kicked to next week, honestly. <laughs> yeah, um, and I do believe uh, there will be some kind of New Japan Cup contest also that we'll be once again probably partnering with Chris uh, with that as well. So we'll give all the details for that next week. There'll be plenty of time to, to enter and get that all set up. So Next week, big uh, New Japan Cup, you know, the big old bracketology will give you all, all the stats and uh, who we think is going to go through and uh, win this year's uh, New Japan Cup. You know, it's New Japan's March Madness. Well, that's going to wrap it up. So next week, uh, stay tuned for that. And if you enjoyed today's show, please consider making a donation by visiting socialsuitflex.com slash donate. Click on the donate button under the Keeping It Strong style logo. Make sure you connect with us on social media. On Twitter, the show is at KI Strong Style. Follow the network at Social Suplex. Follow me at Jeremy L. Donovan on Facebook. We're facebook.com slash Social Suplex. Also find us in the Wrestling Squared Circle Facebook group. On Instagram, we're at Social Suplex. On Reddit, I am the pro black guy. Josh is Keeping It Strong Style. You can email me Jeremy at socialsuplex.com and check out all the other shows that we have here on the Social Suplex Podcast Network. One Nation Radio hosted by Rich Latta and James Boyd. The Grave Consequences hosted by Caleb and Maserati. All Things Elite with Floyd and Austin. The AEW Match Guide Podcast hosted by Sir Sam and the Great Match Generator hosted by Danny Kukler. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a rating and review and we will catch you next week. On Keeping It Strong Style, the ace of podcasts. Ichiban, even though I'm sick. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Keeping It Strong Style. We'll see you next time.